Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. History time, my friends. I'm here with my boy Eris Pina, who is, of course, the history man. Come on, you're the you're the history guy. If we're being honest, number one, and you're also the history T-shirt guy. Oh my gosh, your collection grows vast. How are you doing, man? Good, man. Good. Um, always on the hunt for more T-shirts, as you know. <laughs> the history, they're the history T-shirt and the vintage boxing T-shirt collection is massive indeed dude but we got some massive shit to talk about today no weird stuff intended just massive long careers we've already talked about part one we're following up with part two the Honestly, longest I'm... some some of the longest boxing careers of all time man we're just talking about dudes who would not quit who would not stop yeah you know it's like oh, there's in boxing there's that thing that you know there's really no age limit to retire um unless i guess you're from venezuela um, I'm making a reference, of course, to uh, Luis, Luis Estaba, the former, um, was he, flyweight champion, that um, one of the, that was forced to retire at the age of 40 by the government over there. But other than that, that don't happen in America. If you want to keep on fighting, there's going to be some kind of promotion or some commission that will act, will definitely sanction you without even thinking twice about it. And so, it's like, which yeah. is worse? You know, which is the worst punishment? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> absolutely but um so yeah there's you know part one we mount we named off a lot of big name guys and there's going to be some hall of famers mentioned in part two as well because it's the thing about boxing man if you look throughout history there's been a lot of guys who just never hung them up and, and even when they said they were and there might be a couple of gaps here and there like a year or two of inactivity they still just had a very long career you know like george foreman we brought back up on the first episode wait did we talk about him in the first one we I, we probably mentioned him, but I don't think we like. Okay, well, you know, death on it, but I mean, like, over like George Foreman, Foreman, who you know retired for a decade after losing to Jimmy Young and then coming back in 1987. That's a long gap. But even that, from 87 up until around 19, I think he finally retired in 1998 or so after the Shannon Briggs fight. Um, that's a long second career, a very long second career, filled in with a lot of fights that he did. So, yeah, it's time to dive into it. And the first guy I'm going to bring up, because he's one of my favorites of all time, and it's just a very interesting story in itself, is the Eastern Assassin, Larry Holmes. Hell yeah, dude. That's a good name to bring up. And just to kind of recap real quick who we did talk about, just in case anybody's like, wait a second, who did they talk about? We talked about Roberto Duran, Salmambe. Uh, we talked about... Ugh, let me bring it up, because I got it right here. We talked about also uh, Kid Azteca. We talked about Jack Johnson, and then we talked about Archie Moore. And I mean, we didn't go super in-depth, but we went in-depth enough that we only talked about five guys. So we'll try to kind of squeeze a couple more in today as much as we can, try to stay away from going through a full-on biography. But that being said, man, Larry Holmes is a really good one because he's not only a, a guy who stuck around for a long time, but he was a guy who was effective and a good fighter for a long time. And I mean... Obviously, in that kind of second leg of his career or whatever, he had it was kind of weird, I would say. I would define it as kind of weird because there were instances and fights where he still looked pretty good, like he could still compete with a lot of the top fighters, and then he would be handed an opportunity, but it looked like he just had not been training at all and you know came in and just kind of got washed. But Larry Holmes, dude, nonetheless, one of the greatest heavyweights of all time, and dude was around forever. Yes. Absolutely, man. From, you know, the heavyweight champion when I was born and when you were born was Larry Holmes. 
Holmes was just one of those guys. You know what I mean? Like, and he came up the hard way. He absolutely came up the hard way. Um, he had a short amateur career, nothing like, you know, very substantial, but enough that um, he did make it to the top of his um, amateur class and was a contender, um, a dark horse, so to speak, to, to make the 72 Olympic team. But, you know, he was still young and he was very inexperienced. And the limited footage, if you could see of him back there, he was just kind of like an Ali imitation, really dancing around. You see the jab already, like, in its early stages and the potential of it. But, it, you know, it wasn't really there for him. And guys, and he wasn't really that big either. So a guy like Nick Wells, who knocked him out twice in the amateurs, and um, Dwayne Bobbick, for instance, everyone knows him as, the, you know, the white hopeless of the 70s. But as an amateur, the guy was an absolute steamroller, you know. And... Yeah, there was a reason why a lot of people got behind him and, you know, thought he thought he would be something as a pro. Yeah, I mean, you know, Eddie Futch didn't just try to train any old guy. Like, you know, he had the backing of him and a lot of other people. Bobbick had a lot of backing behind him. Everyone was very excited about him. But so, yeah, he loses. Um, so Holmes gets into the finals of the 76 Olympic trials by default after Nick Wells um, suffered injuries in a firefight with Bobbick. And in that fight, um, Holmes doesn't do bad at first, but after he gets dropped, you clearly see that, like, he gets skittish and he holds a lot and holds and holds until he gets finally gets DQ. And as you know, back then in the 70s, if you turned pro uh, and you didn't make the Olympic team, a uh, prime example is a guy like Aaron Pryor. Even if you had a substantial experience and you, you know, really went through the ranks and beat a lot of other guys that would go on to become champions one day, you're not going to be looked at as shit. You know what I mean? No one's going to be going out of their way to try to pick you up and do anything with you. So Holmes was that same prime example. He had absolutely nothing to his name, nothing of value when he first turned pro. So he hooked up with a manager by the name of, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, uh, Ernie Butler. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And Ernie Butler was an old pro who knew the game inside and out and, you know, was going to train Holmes and also manage him. And they, you know, as a lot of, uh, pros back then had to do they had to go on the circuit taking you know flea bag motels sleeping together in the same beds taking fights wherever they could you know and kind of going through it but eventually um early on in his career after you know a handful of fights um don king gets involved with his career don king relatively still very early and um his promotion and trying to get a hold of things but um one of holmes's first big fights was against a guy by the name of uh, kevin isaac and if you know you recognize that name it was a guy that he didn't have a long career and a ton of fights but he fought a who's who of names and was a well-to-do fighter Holmes had to come up the canvas I believe in that one to win and then from there you know he just on on you know on the crowd just kept on like low-key just going through the works you know what I mean fighting the who's who of journeyman and other guys like that and just kind of building experience and building his record up until I would you know at this point also has to be mentioned he was being a sparring partner for Muhammad Ali so that's the invaluable experience that he was getting. You know what I mean? Like yeah. being a spar for Ali, working exactly. with him constantly, and now having the backing of Don King, who who at this point kicked out Ernie Butler. Um, Holmes is starting to be on the rise. And he, he would have had access to to some of the best heavyweight sparring. Um, well, obviously Muhammad Ali, and that's an invaluable experience uh, being in the gym even for any extended period of time with Muhammad Ali. And you could see that his style obviously was rubbing off on Larry Holmes, but even according to Muhammad Ali, like at first Muhammad Ali, if I'm not mistaken, said something like he didn't really think too much of Larry Holmes. He was just another sparring partner. 
then he realized when he was coming back that he started to kind of stand out a little bit and that he had also seen that Larry Holmes was kind of uh, mimicking him and kind of modeling his style after him or whatever, but that Larry Holmes jab was developing and that he was clearly formidable. And that's where he developed his style, where he made his bones or whatever in the gym as a sparring partner. That's where a lot of fighters do that. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think it was Holmes said the first time he sparred Ali and he got a black guy from him. And he said he wanted nothing to be put on it. He wanted to go back to his neighborhood and show it off to his friends that Ali gave him a shiner. And I get it. Like, who wouldn't, you know, proud that he got to work with the, with the champ and he didn't get knocked out or nothing and probably put in some good work. So, yeah, at that point, um, you make a good point because Ali was one of the commentators when Holmes fought Dwayne Bobbick in the finals of the, of the trials. And when Holmes is poor showing in that fight and looking skittish and, you know, all that stuff, he didn't look like a future world champion. You know, like he had potential. You can see that some skills were there, but it just didn't look like anything that was going to be becoming of him. But I mean, look where he was at. And then by 1975, um, he fights on the undercard of the Thriller in Manila against Dwayne Bobby's brother, Rodney. Um, not as acclaimed as his brother, but a guy that was probably more durable. Like Rodney was a dude who just, he could take a good, he could take a beating too. And he was an Ali sparring partner himself. That fight's on YouTube, and then you can really see Holmes starting to come together because he beats the shit out of Bobbick in that fight. Just absolutely jabs his head off, hits him with any type of combination he wants. Bobbick is teak tough, so he just walks through all of it and just eats him and eats him. It kind of looks like Rocky Apollo Creed, except without the comeback. Yeah, Dwayne Bobbick was a little bit more like you touch him a few times and whoa. <laughs> oh, yeah. You see his face just go, and then, you know, yeah, it was it you like could... he was eight. You could see he was biting down on his mouthpiece and just going, oh, fuck. Yeah, he didn't like that shit at all. But no, uh, Rodney was definitely a little bit more, a little bit more in the game, a little bit more, a little bit more tough, a little bit, you know, down to go rounds or whatever, even if he probably wasn't as talented or wasn't quite as skilled overall. But that's, that's boxing. not Sometimes the skill isn't necessarily what it is, but even so, yeah, that's, Larry Holmes coming out party in a in a way where he's obviously uh being put on display on a really big fight card and against a unknown name and absolutely just beats the hell out of him. Yeah, dude just hands him a, a nasty L. Yeah, you know, Bobic was a known name at that point, and he had Angelo Dundee's backing. There's um there's a Boxing Illustrated I have around here somewhere. I think I showed it to you where the cover of it is a bunch of mismatch of things. But on one corner, it says Rodney Bobbick, um, Ali's training, um, Ali giving him advice to become super champ one day. Sure. But anyways, that was basically his coming out party. And from there, you know, he still, he wasn't fighting big names, but he was still fighting, you know, guys who had been around the block, like Billy Joyner, for instance, Oscar Bonavena's last, um, uh, last opponent and a guy who had been through the ringer against everybody, including mm-hmm. Sonny Liston and a host of others. Tough, tough guy. And again, that was on another Ali undercard. So Holmes is being moved up and he's racking up these wins. He fights Roy Tiger Williams, another absolutely um beast of a guy that no one wanted to fight. And before you know it, he's near the top of the rankings now, getting ready to fight an eliminator with Ernie Shavers. And once he fights Shavers in the first fight, I mean, he blows him away. That was really like the coming out party for him that the world got to see that Caesar's Palace, everything. And Shavers, as dangerous as he was, home slapped him around and wasn't even competitive. And so once he did that, then he gets the fight with Ken Norton. And I mean, the rest is history. 
on the uh, recently deceased Colonel and his his call of round 15 of Holmes Norton, which he was ready to whip out on a whim on any broadcast word yes, for he word was. with with his exact cadence from 1978, if you'd ask him. Or mm-hmm. if not, if even if you didn't ask him, sometimes he'd do it. <laughs> I don't think Paulie Malinaggi asked him the last time no, we all I really him don't think he did. And at one point, he started it. Yeah, Paulie Malinaggi didn't ask him to do a lot of things on that broadcast. And <laughs> Colonel did him anyway. Sure. Rest uh, his yeah, soul. At one point, you heard, yeah, round 15. Holmes comes out. Double jab. Left her. I'm like, oh, shit. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, oh, you, dude, it's like fucking, yeah, PTSD all over again. Dude, the bombs are falling. Fucking guy. That was an all-time great fight. My name, the one of the, I love watching that fight. And Rest his assassin-killing soul. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he did. I mean, to his credit, he did let, um, add a lot of excitement and intrigue to that broadcast, especially for that last round. That last round fucking banged. All right. Up he until did. He did have a couple of very memorable calls. I'm not going to deny that. Sure. Like the last 10 seconds, the last 15 seconds of that fight, of that round, when after they were already beating the holy hell out of each other, Norton was winning at first and Holmes came back. And then they're right there. And then Holmes throws that desperation uppercut that Norton kind of walks in. He's going to go down. He's not going to go down. He's down. God. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like incredible. And like, you would think that's what literally won Holmes the fight. Probably that last 15 second flurry that he landed there. And, um, you know, the only problem with him, and this is what's going to make him more interesting as we talk about his second half of his career is that the first half, he was the villain, you know, for many reasons. Um, he wasn't a popular he wasn't a popular popular champion at first because Ali had just retired. Ali was still active more actually kind of when Holmes became champion in 78 like you know he was still fighting Sphinx and stuff. So by the time Ali formally retired in 79 um Holmes was the guy standing but at the same time the WBA broke off as well you had John Tate and that whole mess going through over there and so there was like confusion in the in the division and other stuff going on, and then add to the fact that Holmes was a bitter guy, all right? He was not a person that was going to try to be all happy-go-lucky and smiling for the fans and knew it all that. No, he had a lot of grievances, and he liked to express them, and he didn't care if you wanted to hear him or not. He was going to let his opinion be known, <laughs> and especially with Ali always bugging him and being in his ear, Holmes was always pissed off, and so he'd be yelling about this and justices of that. Ali's doing this to hex him. Don King's doing this. The world just don't appreciate me. I can't do this, blah, 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 and then it doesn't help that he fights a rematch with Ernie Shavers, almost gets his head knocked off and comes back to win. And then he also struggles with Mike Weaver, who at that point hadn't really come into his own. And the only time he was picking up fights that, you know, before he really got on a streak was just to either pick up groceries or to like pay a cable bill or whatnot, not pay a bill, you know? So like Holmes was really struggling for respect. And then after he beat Ali in 80, they hated him even more because look, they beat the hell out of their hero. So it's like, what is he going to do? Yeah, he he tried early on in the 70s. He tried to uh, kind of ingratiate himself. He tried to kind of, um, he did some commercials, you know, like the truck commercial he did with Ray Leonard. Uh, you know, he, he, he tried to kind of be that guy and be a little bit more of a superstar celebrity or whatever. And why it didn't work, I really couldn't say, but it didn't really work. He wasn't caught on to the same way that like Ray Leonard was, for instance. He wasn't that kind of star. He, But he'd also definitely, like you said, felt unappreciated and allowed that to turn him bitter. 
and he was bitter. He acted bitter um, toward a lot of press. And also, you know, he didn't really want to have the playful kind of relationship with uh, Cosell that Muhammad Ali had and stuff like, oh, you know, like he's always starting fights in front of Cosell. I was going to say, yeah, dude, like Cosell would, you know, bring something up and he'd be like, so, so, so what, you know, and it'd be like, God damn, he's just asking you if you want to fight him. Holy shit. You know, and, and then he was you know, just home would jump up and start throwing blows at somebody, which would result in Cosell suffering a bloody lip or his toupee again, knocked off. I mean, poor Jerry Cooney didn't even do anything. He was just standing there. He's like, Hey, sir. Oh, oh my God. Stacking me. Fucking guy. Dude. But he, but he was, he was very bitter and he acted bitter. And that was the unfortunate thing that didn't really win him any friends in the media. It didn't really win him any friends with fans. Luckily now, obviously as the years have gone by, he's far more kindly remembered, but at the time, dude, I think I, I don't blame him in some ways. It was tough. Oh, absolutely. And there he is dominating the division, fighting anyone that they put in front of him and beating them. But he's one of those guys too, that like, you know, he wasn't looking for a unification. He didn't give a shit about that. Um, if you were going to pay him enough money to, you know, to fight some guy like Scott Frank or Marvis Frazier, which he willingly did and dropped the WBC belt to do that for, then he would do that. Like, you know, he, he did things on his own terms. And I think that bothered the public too, because he just kind of gave a shit. Like, I don't really give a damn what you think. I'm just going to do what's best for me. Yeah. And so by the time, you know, he has one of the longest and most respectful reigns you'll, you've seen, um, you'll never see longest one since the days of Joe Lewis, more or less. And like consecutively. And um, he finally, you know, when he gets upset by Michael Spinks in 1980, what was it, 85, the first fight was? Or 86, right? God, I'd have to look it. Was again, but yeah, something yeah. like that, 85, yeah. Okay, yeah. So when he gets upset by Spinks in their first fight, like, the public was actually excited about that because the whole thing leading up to that fight was Holmes tying Marciano's record, you know? And... Um, Holmes, I think, you know, he's already publicly feuding with them. Peter Marciano, 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 younger brother, who was like, you know, his biggest advocate and the one that always kept his name out in the public, definitely was openly cheering for uh, Spinks in the, for that fight. <laughs> and um, it just, it just created a big thing because Holmes was derating. Fucking uh, cursing Larry Holmes on the streets of Brockton and yeah, shit. Absolutely, bro. Like, you know, there was definitely posters of him with a bullet in it with people at people's doors in Brockton. Um. Yeah, Holmes was talking a lot of shit. He didn't care. Like, he was just making it known that he thought Marciano was absolutely nothing and that, you know, he was a below him and X, Y, and Z. But Spinks, to his credit, I mean, it was an awkward fight. It wasn't the best fight, but Spinks smothered him and, you know, won a convincing decision, at least close enough that that um it upset the apple cart. And so... Yeah, it was only controversial because people treaded out the old, you have to beat the champion to take the, you know, if you beat him on the fucking cards mathematically, you beat him, you know? So exactly. that's... But I mean, yeah. And, well, and, and a lot of people also, I think, confused the two fights. It was the rematch that that's I don't what agree I'm with, and not the first fight. The first fight was legit. And that's what really sent Larry Holmes into a tailspin because Holmes clearly won that rematch. If anyone can watch it, like, it wasn't... You know, it was a close fight, but one. Yeah, it was close, but Holmes should have won. Absolutely, Holmes won that. He definitely put in the work. He rallied at the end, and so if you if he thought he was bitter while he was champion, you should have seen him after that fight because then he thought that you know everybody was against him, this and that. And what did he say? Um, he said, uh, "You can kiss me with the sun show, with the sun don't shine." And since we're on HBO, that's my big black behind. 
<laughs> yeah, so he retires. And, you know, there was a lot of opportunities for him in the interim after that. But he was, you know, minding his business, tending to his businesses in Easton and singing. Keep that in mind, singing with his um with his band. You know, I don't know what it is about these former heavyweight champions and trying to go on the road crew, you know, people and stuff like that. But him and Joe Frazier were, eh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Too many of them oh. thought they could sing was the problem. Yeah. And people would go over there and encourage them to do this, you know? So <laughs> it's like when I told, you know, the time Ali was on Arsenio Hall, and I just always think this is hilarious. They're going through his book, and then he goes, what's wrong with Larry Holmes? He was like, Larry Holmes recently jumped off of a car after a boxing match, and he's singing now. He was like, what's going on with him? And then you hear the crowd starts laughing in you know, the background. <laughs> so little did they know he wasn't done. No, not at all. So finally, he finds, you know, but he's getting fielded offers. Finally, he finds an offer that, you know, suits him the best. Mike Tyson, 1988. Tyson now, I mean, no one's seen this type of destruction since the days of Jack Dempsey. He just captivated the world. And by 1988, Tyson is really captivating the world because of his outside the ring antics too, which were only going to get worse at that point. But at this point, you know, he still wasn't falling apart. The wheels weren't really falling off yet. He still was his destructive self. And he had a point to prove. Mike Tyson loved Muhammad Ali. That was one of his heroes. And he was going to, like he did to Trevor Burbick, he was out to exact some revenge. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and make excuses for Larry Holmes because he looked fine about 18 months before this. So it's it's kind of dumb to be like, oh, this is old Larry Holmes. And on yeah. top of that, he still won some fights after this. But I don't think there's any question. This was not like top form Larry Holmes. This was a Larry Holmes who had been basically called out of a retirement, probably wasn't in very good shape, probably wasn't in a super great headspace in terms of actually wanting to fight. And basically was just like, all right, they're offering me money. I got to fucking take this money. You know, I, again, I'm not, I, I don't need to make excuses for him. He make his own excuses, but that definitely was not top form Larry Holmes for sure. Would top form Larry Holmes in 1988 have beaten Mike Tyson anyway? I'm not saying he would have. I'm just saying that was not, you know, the best Larry Holmes we've ever seen, but he got moiked bro he got you know the the backing up against the ropes and then kind of not seeing that hook coming laid out was ugh. and you know for but one thing that you can uh that should be mentioned is that as we said before you know he was one of those champions that like he was always fighting the public and wasn't really adored by them the beginning of round four when he first started getting on his toes he started dancing around the ring and flicking out that jab looking like it's 1978 again and you know you see the Whoever's on the on on the marquees of of the Vegas trip when he's probably defending against Alfredo Evangelista or something like that, people started getting memories, right? And they started cheering because it was cool to see, especially when you see a former champion, a guy that had been around a long time, and this is a big comeback fight for him, and he's older, and he's looking like his vintage prime form, even briefly, which he did. You know, he's pumping out the jab, he's over there throwing a combo, and Tyson, you know, was just watching it. But Tyson also knew what was going on. That was a show. He knew that Holmes didn't have shit. And eventually he was going to catch him, which he did and laid him out. So at that point, you thought, okay, that's it. Larry Holmes is one of the great heavyweight champions, but it is what it is. That's how he's going to end his career. Like most fighters usually end their careers. But it didn't happen that way. He decided to come back again. And this time it's the early 90s. It's a whole new landscape. Mike Tyson is no longer heavyweight champion. At this point, he's actually about to go into jail. Um, George Foreman's on his comeback, which probably inspired him to do the same. And... 
it's just a whole new landscape with a whole different lot of fighters. I mean, a few of his, you know, a few of his buddies from the 80s were still there. You know, Greg Page was active, Tony Tubbs, others, Michael Dokes, you know, other guys that were active from that time. But Holmes went on a different approach. Instead of just going right in with some big names, you know, he picked and chose what he had to fight. And then comes back in 1991 against a guy we've mentioned plenty of times on the show, Tim Doc Anderson, and off to the races he won. Yeah, a little Elvis Parker action. If anybody wants to go look for uh, that episode, that's that was a pretty decent episode as far as salacious and gnarly stuff happening. Um, but yeah, the, there were a lot of heavyweights in the early 90s, late 80s or early 90s who had some something to do with Elvis Parker or Tim Anderson in one way or another. <laughs> they had come through Florida or anywhere near there at all. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, dude, Larry Holmes kind of marched forward, definitely seemed inspired by the comeback of George Foreman, who by that point had started seeming like, oh, okay, he's, he's not just a joke. He actually gave Evander Holyfield to run for his money in mm -hmm. a losing effort, but nonetheless, you know, made it a good fight, made it a much better fight and more competitive fight than a lot of people thought it would be going in. And so you have Larry Holmes coming back and Larry Holmes uh, gets aimed toward somebody who's, you know, unbeaten at the time, thought of very highly, had just not too, too long before that uh, had, you know, beaten the ever loving crap out of Tommy Morrison in a super ugly knockout slash stoppage. Um, and also on top of that was, if I'm not mistaken, the captain of the 1988 Olympic team, he might not have been the captain. But I, he was on the 1988 Olympic team. Um, and in gold any medalist. case, yep, that's right. He was a gold medalist and uh, a very, very good amateur, although kind of old for his pro debut, was in the U.S. Army, et cetera, et cetera. Ray Mercer, dude. And this was not supposed to, like, go this way. Like, Larry, this was supposed to be Ray Mercer stamps over old Larry Holmes and gets the name on his belt. You know what I mean? That's, that's what this was supposed to be. That's not what happened. Well, Mercer at this time was the WBO heavyweight champion, which obviously was super lightly regarded, especially at this point in time. But the WBO wasn't even going to rank, uh, refuse to sanction the fight at first. And that's why um, Mercer gave up the belt because Holmes wasn't rated. He had only just beaten a few guys at this point to come back. And like you said, he was just being used in, you know, as a name to be laid out while Mercer goes on to an eventual fight with a Baron to Holyfield. And nah, Holmes absolutely schooled him. It was a beautiful performance. You know, he stood in the corner a lot of the fight, but Mercer couldn't do anything with it. You tie him up, pull him back, hit him with the jab, jab, right hand, the combinations, hit him with uppercuts. Like he just, you know, Holmes had that style that he was so old school and he had all these different tools from learning from guys like Eddie Futch and Ray Arcel and, you know, Ernie Butler early on and Richie G uh, Giacchetti to his credit, I, I guess to a degree, even though that guy was a loon. And, you know, others like that, like Holmes had a absolute whirlwind and plus all the Ali like, um, experience that he had sparring with him. You know, like Holmes just knew how to fight. You know, when you have a guy like that whose mind was still really sharp, even he was, you know, not the same, obviously, as he was when heavyweight champion, but he still just knew how to use what he had. And he knew how to use it to its maximum ability. He was a nightmare. And a guy like Mercer, who was very, like you said, slow footed, ponderous, it was easy to hit and, you know, very predictable in his attack sometimes easy pickings for Holmes and Holmes, you know, put on an absolute clinic and enough. So, and he was so impressive enough that he got the next shot um, against the Holyfield. holy field. And, and there was probably some mixture of Mercer overlooking Holmes Absolutely. a little bit too. You know what I mean? And that's not to excuse anything, but you know, you, you come in there and you show up or you don't, 
And Mercer probably didn't show up the way that he should have, thinking that, ah, he's going to have an easy night with old Larry Holmes. Nah, dude. Larry Holmes was still viable. He was still, uh, you know, still very much uh, not a top-level fighter, but the kind of guy that you clearly just couldn't sleep on. You couldn't just stumble into there, bro. (laughs) Everett Bigfoot Martin. Man, I I don't know. I'd have to look it up, but I, I think Everett Martin might have fought, like, the most... The most like ex champions, ex heavyweight champions, bro. Like every single heavyweight champion fought Everett Martin. I swear to God. But uh, 90s, bro, when you had those dependable journeymen, even with bad records, but you knew they can go to distance, you got they got their number called. His name caught my eye, and I'm like, geez, Ken Everett Martin, good gravy. But um, not nah, dude. So Mercer was supposed to get that shot at Holyfield. And this was kind of a strange time, dude, because Holyfield had not yet kind of gotten that aura. Of, he, a lot of people thought he was boring. A lot of people yeah. were like, you know, Buster Douglas had this big, uh, this great big triumphant performance against Mike Tyson. And so then when that happens, of course, people think, God, God, dude, Buster Douglas, Jack Dempsey, Buster Douglas, George Foreman, Buster Douglas, Muhammad Ali. But you match him against anybody. Oh, my God. And then he comes back and lays an egg because fool just got so in his head, you know, and got just taken out. He was a he was a nobody, you know, in the grand scheme of things, unfortunately. But so then the same thing happens with Holyfield. Oh, well, Holyfield, you know, beat the guy who beat the guy. So therefore, Holyfield, blah, blah, blah. But then the, that early run of Holyfield was, for a lot of people, unimpressive and boring. And they were like, eh, this, is, this wasn't the fighter we wanted. You know, we want another Tyson. We want somebody who's coming in destroying people. And this guy is kind of struggling with these old fighters, man. Absolutely. That's literally what was going on with him is that, like, first defense against Foreman. People thought he would take him out. Foreman obviously proves much more competitive and gives him a run for his money. Um, then he fights Burke Cooper. Uh, Because he was supposed to fight Tyson next, but we all know the story with that one. And then Cooper almost knocks him out in a fight that no one expected to be as dramatic as it ended up being. And now he's fighting Larry Holmes. And when he fights Holmes, like, you know, the first round, Holyfield is in there. He's trying to work him over. and He's trying to, you know, beat him up a little bit and trying to prove to himself that he's going to be the dominant dude. And then again, Holmes, though, is one of those guys that he adapts very quickly and he just has a great mind. And right away, he started stymieing Holyfield the way he did Mercer in, in his fight. You know, if you watch round two, which was a clear Holmes round, he's there jabbing, hitting him with combinations right hand. Holyfield's falling into his traps, and Holmes is barely even moving out of the corner. And he's in Holyfield's corner doing this. And he's working him, and he's whooping him, and making him look kind of bad at times, and had a great round. And then after the round was over, because you can tell he's feeling himself, he stays there, and he has his arms on the shoulder, and he lays there like that. And Lou Duber starts yelling, get out of here, like that. And then Holmes looks at him and rubs it and taps him on the head like he's a little kid and walks away. <laughs> and that's what Lou Duma was the angriest dude cornerman ever, though. All you had to do was look at him and he was gonna start yelling. He was so pissed off because Holmes was taking his sweet time getting back over there and holding up Holyfield sitting down. And so, but then George Benton sat him down and was like, Listen, man, he is getting in the zone. Do not let him get into a zone. Like you need to do you know, what we're training on. I don't know what the hell you were doing in that last round, but if you let him get comfortable, we're going to have a long night, you know, and Holyfield got with it. But again, that was still a fight that he only won by like, you know, four points or so, which is against a guy like Holmes, you would think, yeah, so Holyfield did struggle. I didn't take it till after he beat Tyson the second time that people real public really, you know, took to him. I mean, sure. The bullfights helped his, helped his toughness and status, but like, yeah, 
So the 90s were a weird time. So after that, Dole Holmes still remained active. Like people thought he would retire after that Holyfield fight, maybe because that was a great performance. But nah, he still remained active up until the point, you know, you would see him, he would fight uh, just a who's who of like, you know, journeymen and other names like that. Guys like Jose Rabalta, Jesse Ferguson, um, Paul Poria from New Bedford, Massachusetts. And that used to work with my dad. <laughs> yeah, he fought him too. And um, like he mentioned, Bigfoot Martin. So all of this though leads up to somehow another improbable title shot against Oliver McCall in 1995. <laughs> yeah, improbable himself, Oliver McCall, you know, being yes. that he took out Lennox Lewis with a kind of a freak, a freak shot that I I mean. I don't really want to call any knockout or whatever lucky or whatever, but it did seem to kind of come out of nowhere. And the same thing that happened to Lennox Lewis a couple of years later, but Oliver McCall obviously had his own demons and his own issues in boxing and out. And so himself seemed like a kind of an unlikely champion. Yeah. And, and then, you know, went in against an old Larry Holmes and man, he probably cut it a lot closer than he meant to cut it. Oh, I mean, I watched that live with my dad. That was one of the first um, pay-per-views I got to watch because I was like starting to get into boxing at that point. And I knew who Larry Holmes was, but I wasn't like that familiar with his career at that point like that. And, but I just knew that like, you know, this was going to be like cool. I knew my dad was excited, so I was just going to be excited to watch it with him. And watching Holmes early on, I still had enough wherewithal. that I was like, wow, he's winning. Like he was looking good. Well, you know, McCall was struggling there. And it's interesting because McCall at that point was trained by uh, Greg Page and um, George Benton. And Holmes for this fight was trained by his old friend, Sal Mambi, who we met, talked about on the past show. And so like, there was a lot of good minds in each corner for that fight. You know what I mean? But Holmes, you know, if there was a Holmes for the Holyfield fight, he would have won that going away. But at this point he is a lot older, you know, McCall kept on, a guy that can take a massive punch and you're not going to hurt him, even though if he can outbox him, kept on coming and coming. And Holmes lost a very competitive decision. But I mean, my God, man, at his age and being able to do that was still with something. Yeah, Oliver McCall is that kind of guy who, you know, he definitely had a kind of sparring partner, sparring partner mentality in, in a lot of fights where, and, and I mean, like, you know, <laughs> Teddy Atlas would get kind of, kind of annoying with the, him saying that shit. But it is true because you do see a lot of fighters who are used to being sparring partners for bigger fighters go into fights and just kind of like yeah. get into this pattern where they're doing the same shit over and over, same shit over and over. And that's what Oliver McCall would do sometimes, dude. And he was predictable, durable as hell. But mm -hmm. I'm, and so, I mean, you were in for a long night if you were going to be fighting him for sure. Uh, and it probably was not going to be easy because he did not have an easy style, but he could be outboxed. You know, you could outmaneuver him. That was the thing. And that several fighters showed that it was just that Larry Holmes at this point in his career, at this point in his life, dude, it's fucking mid nineties, man. You know, like he won the WBC title in 1978, you know, we're almost 20 years on now. And we're talking also about a guy who had not stayed active the entire time or stayed in the gym the entire time, but took a couple extended breaks and got, got uh, out of shape. Yeah. You know, this, like you said, if this had been a few years earlier, he probably would have won that belt, which in and of itself raises some kind of uh, funny matchups to bring up with Lennox Lewis working his way back to the WBC on that side. And another thing we also kind of forgotten, didn't really mention <laughs> was earlier in the 1980s uh larry holmes really helped put the ibf on the map uh yeah. 
I mean, he's not solely responsible, of course. It was Bob Lee taking bribes the entire time. No, I'm kidding. Not really. I'm probably not kidding at all. But that being said, no, like, you know, when uh, Larry Holmes dropped the WBC title and then basically he said, all right, yeah, hello, IBF. All And they were, what were they? Uh, they were like the ISBA or something like that at first. Like it was something weird. Like they had some yeah, weird acronym. Yeah. But I can't I can't remember. But in any case, they changed it to the IBF very shortly afterwards. Well, and, I mean, it was easy for him to choose that because it was all right, fight Greg Page, who at this point, you know, in his weird career himself was actually taking shit seriously for a change and could have been a difficult fight. Or considered a threat for a little bit. I mean, whether he was or not, I don't know, but he was considered one. Yeah, well, which, uh, th- well, that would have been a tougher fight than the one he ended up taking, which was Marvis Frazier. So, yeah, proof's in the pudding, bro. You know, he's yeah. doing the old bolo punch, whoosh, whoosh, you, know. you know, yeah, proof is in the pudding. Um, but yeah, I, I forgot to mention the whole IBF part. So, if you're mad at the IBF, blame Larry Holmes. But, oh, yeah, I mean, like, if someone, like, for instance, if the WBO, not to cut you off, but like, if the WBO, right, had a guy like Holmes. I mean, a higher profile champion like that or endorse them back then. That would be like the equivalent of like, I don't know, Fury endorsing some bullshit belt today or somebody like that. You know, I mean, like the whoever would be considered like legit, you know, legit champion or even Lennox Lewis, for example, or Klitschko, one of those guys. You know what I mean? If they took the helm and be like, no, I'm going to take this belt and defend it and actually try to do that, it usually lends more credibility. I mean, the IBO tried to do that thing for a minute and no one really gave a shit about them, but like, you know, Holmes definitely played that part because they were less sanctioned. You know what it is? I think it was because they were less sanctioned bodies back then. You only had the WBC and WBA. So when you had um, a guy like Holmes endorsing that, and now there's three of them, but still it's only three as opposed to like 18,000 today. It's a little bit different. Yeah, and the WBC and the WBA were openly feuding since about 76 or so, 77. And then, you know, they had had a bunch of issues. And so I think that it probably would make sense at some point that another one would come along. And that's exactly what happened. But then, yeah, later on in the late 90s, he he didn't really come that far away from from, you know, serious contendership, if not winning the WBC belt and then having to face some serious up and comers at that point, dude, that could, I mean, I don't think he would have won, but it could have been interesting. Do you think I even would have, uh, that you uh, would have went through with that? I don't see. That's another thing. I don't know. I because, don't know if he was really interested in that. It, he might've just retired after winning. Because McCall was being, was being pushed toward um, a potential uh, Tyson fight. Like Lewis was still building himself back up. Like, you know, he wasn't going to, he was going to, especially if Holmes won that bell, he was going to be out of the picture. There was no way he was going to get a shot at that. So if anything, I don't know, Holmes might have fought Bruno the way McCall did. Maybe. And then, then like somehow if he was still champion after that, they would put yeah, him in. If he survived <laughs> Frank Bruno's incessant rabbit punching. Yeah. And then, um, and then maybe, well, I don't know, I, hypothetically, I, who knows? Maybe, no, you know what? They probably would have put him in Oliver McCall, bro. All right, not Oliver McCall, excuse me, Peter McNeely. Because McNeely was the other dude, too, who was supposed to be in line for a title fight with McCall. And it was supposed to be at the Boston Garden and all that. And I can definitely see Larry Holmes being like, fuck yeah, let's do it. Snubby. Yeah, so. But, I mean, his career still wasn't even ended at that point. You know, just, I'm not going to go over all of it, but he still had a couple of names that he fought. He went to... um. Went to fight Brian Nielsen in, was it Denmark? Yep. When 
they were they were promoting Brian Nielsen as he was trying to match Marciano's record. Yeah, that's right. And he also had a, an interesting fight on Tuesday Night Feist against a young Maurice Harris, which he clearly lost. And the judges gave him the benefit of the doubt in that one. Mo and, Harris, dude. Poor Mo Harris. He won that fight going away, bro. I don't even... Whatever. Yeah, speaking of sparring partners, that dude was like the ultimate sparring partner heavyweight of the 1990s, but like had a, had a couple bangers. And he had actually, he had really good talent. He just was not big. Yeah. So he had to fight monsters. He, you know, would put he up a Lennox Lewis's sparring partner for a few years. Yeah, he was a good fighter, but if he got drilled, oh man, it wasn't good because he would get his head knocked off. But, um, you know, his his career just ended up though in the late in the late nineties and the early two thousands. That's when things got really weird because they started those weird legends pay per views where he was fighting other retreads like Mike Weaver and Bone Crusher Smith again, and then he finished his career with Butterbean of all people. Wow. Yeah, I rem- I remember that pretty clearly. I mean, and you know, obviously, but like the those other the other guys like weaver and whatnot who were like kind of making their comeback to around this time or sticking back around gosh it was like embarrassing dude i didn't really understand that at all there were there were a handful of guys from that era who were like you know trying to come back in like the late 90s and early 2000s i mean george foreman i guess just blame george Foreman, but yeah dude it's a those those pay per views were bad, man. I think Greg Page and Tim Witherspoon fought a rematch, and pay- and Witherspoon threw his back out, so he had to quit in the fight. Um, uh, you know, yeah, just yeah. That Witherspoon was- had a couple of them on like on like uh, Fox Sports or in the early two thousands. He had a couple comeback fights too. That was Larry Holmes. You know, I mean, just a long, crazy career. But at the end of it, people—he's one of those guys that he was appreciated more as his career went on, especially in the second half of his career, when he was more okay. mellow and not so much of a bitter dickhead and anything else like that. And today, he's considered one of the all-time greats, rightfully so. Yeah, definitely people have, have softened their stance on him, have kind of mellowed on him a little bit, and have accepted that he's a great fighter and, and you know, had a little bit more entertainment value to him than people appreciated at the time. Yeah, he definitely struggled with some fighters he probably should not have struggled with. But he got the win, and nonetheless, you know, fought who was available at the time. Great champion. Great, great champion. Still in. Luckily enough, he's still around today, and he's up there. He's one of the elder statesmen now of the heavyweight division, of the heavyweights like him. Excuse me, Foreman. Sheesh, um, off the top of my head, I can't really think of any, a lot of others from the era that are still alive, but, you know, yeah. Still owns some percentage of Eastern Pennsylvania, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely, man. I can't imagine that most of that town that goes around that you, if you mention his name, everyone will still worship the ground he walks on, especially the older folk. As they should. As they should, because I don't hey, know. Hey, remember when we met at the Larry Holmes disco? Yeah, I don't know shit else about Easton, Pennsylvania, unless, do they make Easton bats in Easton, Pennsylvania? Because <laughs> if not, dude, that's all you got is Larry Holmes, Easton. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's not hey, that's not a bad only thing to have though, you know. I mean, you know, like what else does Canastota have besides Karen Basilio? Well, not Graziano's anymore. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, what I bring up now I'm nope, angry. we gotta move on. It's sad. <laughs> Too sad. <laughs> no, nah, there there's there's actually a pretty decent amount of fighters we could bring up. I'm gonna bring up a pretty good one here though. Um I'm gonna reach 
not as far back as we could. We we still have a couple more that we can go way back, but I thought Kenny Lane, that's a pretty good one. Um, and also there's a pretty good story to his later career when he made it, when he made his comeback to, um, you know, and, and especially because I think the way that things changed and how much they changed during the, uh, during the career of Kenny Lane, you know, from the time he, he made his pro debut in 1953 to his last fight in 1985, that's a lot of change in the sport of boxing. I mean, in society in general and in technology and everything, but especially in the sport of boxing, um, it's obviously still the same sport, but we're talking about a time in the early 1950s where we've talked about this before, where so much was changing because of television entering the equation in boxing. I mean, a lot was changing um, the way things were getting, the, the money was getting dispersed around uh, the way fighters were getting paid everything was changing. And during this time, in the early 1950s, one of the kind of resounding hymns and what everybody was saying was boxing is going to die. TV is going to kill boxing. You know, we're not, you know, boxing as we know it is not going to exist. And you know, the funny thing was they kind of were, they kind of were right in a way uh, because the boxing, the way that it existed prior to television doesn't really exist anymore. And TV did partially succeed and killing off a lot of club level boxing and a lot of, you know, uh, athletic club level boxing, non-televised boxing, because it basically took over all of the money that goes into boxing. So going from that era when TV's just entering the equation and then he's uh, fighting in 1985, just prior to like pay-per-view, the rise of pay-per-view. I mean, that's, that's pretty fucking wild, really. But in any case... Kenny Lane, in case anybody's going to, all right, get to who Kenny Lane is. Who is Kenny Lane? Dude was actually a lightweight in the 1950s and 60s. He was from Michigan. He was a farm boy, grew up on a Michigan farm. Um, and he had gone in actually a very short period of time. In 1953, he started boxing. And then by about two years later, he was taking on Patty DeMarco. I mean, that's pretty, pretty that's a steep learning curve, bro. And a, lot of, and a lot of people thought that he should have beaten Patty DeMarco in a fight that he lost very early on in his career. Um, and, I mean, that's kind of where his career started out. He was a really hot, lightweight contender, prospect slash contender in the early uh, – or in the mid until late 1950s and, you know, fought a, a pretty good crop of lightweights if we're being serious here. Oh, absolutely, man. If you just go through his record, you'll see names like Ralph Dupas. You'll see Teddy uh, Red Top Davis, who, um, if you look at his record, didn't have the best one, but he fought Sandy Sadler for the featherweight title and fought everybody and everyone you could have possibly imagined. Orlando Zoleta, and like you mentioned, also Patty DeMarco, who was a uh, lightweight champion for a cup of coffee during the um, weird uh, Jimmy Carter era. So it's like... Um, yeah, Jimmy Carter, former lightweight champion. So it's like, yeah, yeah not the he, president. Yeah, not the president. Yeah, for people, yeah, for whatever reason, Makes it I was a nightmare to search for him, unfortunately. <laughs> sure. Um, but eventually he gets a title shot against, you know, long reigning, long time uh, champion Joe Brown, old bones, who at that point had been a champion for a very long time, respectable guy who had been around, ruled for the lightweight division forever, and nobody ever talks about him. 
No, he's completely forgotten because he was such a low-key individual and he wasn't like Mr. Excitement either. He was a technical fighter. You know what I mean? Like he had good fights that he like, you know, knocked the shit out of dudes here and stuff like that. But like he was just, you know, during the era of lightweights after that, like Jimmy Carter type era, he was, you know, because he beat Wallace Bud Smith, who wasn't really popular himself. And then now he's, you know, Joe Brown's kind of unassuming and like he's a workman-like type fighter. He's not a guy that's you know, very over the top. He didn't have the flair of Sugar Ray Robinson or like, you know, the explosiveness of a guy like Joe Lewis or other dudes like that. He was just very, you know, workmanlike and just went about his business. And that didn't really create, like you said, in an era where you're trying to find TV stars and TV fighters, he didn't make for great TV all the time. You know what I mean? So he was one of those world traveler champions, kind of like in the reign of like Eddie Perkins, where he would have to go in the other person's backyard, but usually he'd still come out as champ. Um, he had a long ass career himself. Uh, yeah, they they had to start making decisions on TV as to whether or not, like, okay, do we want a champion who's probably gonna fight fifteen rounds, yeah. and so that's only one fight that we get on there. We might not be able to advertise quite as much, or do we want to have two lower level guys, but the fight's probably gonna go two or three rounds? Might be some knockdowns, some crazy shit can get more commercials in, more ad. You know what I'm saying? So they start making those kinds of decisions, and unfortunately, guys like. Joe Brown are going to kind of, you know, get lost in the wayside. Totally. And so, you know, he fights Joe Brown for the championship and loses a razor close decision because that was a lot of part of the course for Brown fights at that point. You know, he would usually eat them out. And there's no shame in losing to a guy like Joe Brown, even if he felt that he got robbed or whatever it is. All you're doing is just gaining experience like that. And especially in an era like that, one loss, especially to a champion in a close one, is not going to really bump you that down that bad on the cards. Yeah, you know I mean? exactly. Yeah, it's a different era. It's not like, oh my god, you lost your zero, you lost your oh. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, the the phrase "he got losses" was not some shit that anybody ever said back in the 1950s. Exactly, and so he bounces back anyways and gets a huge win over another streaking contender at the time, Carlos Ortiz. So, yeah, that was like. That was a big win, probably the biggest win of his career at that point, and probably would be the biggest win of his career overall. And so he's streaking, and up until that point, and then he fights Carlos Ortiz again. This time it's for the vacant junior welterweight championship. And by the late 50s, early 60s, this is still a title that's like, yeah, it's been, you know, defend, it's been, you know, recognized before and all that, but it's still a secondary belt that's never really got a lot of traction, a division that's always kind of struggled for, um, respect and like you know acceptance is that the right way to put it you think mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah for sure i i would agree yeah it wasn't until later on when i think that they figured out the more fights they sanctioned and the more divisions they they had fights in where that they could sanction that they figured out no let's put let's pump up these junior divisions for sure yeah. so that we can get more fucking sanctioning you know but for sure by that point the junior divisions had they were still kind of eh, you know and you aren't going to make money being a junior welterweight champion. A guy like Ortiz, after he wins that belt. It was a springboard, yeah. Exactly. Everybody's main goal was still to be lightweight champion. That was Ortiz's still main goal. But anyways, he's not going to say no to fight for the junior welterweight title. So he fights um, So he fights Kenny Lane, and Ortiz this time destroys him. Two rounds, you know, he drops him, cuts him up pretty badly. Lane had a tendency to cut a lot, and he didn't have the best of skin, so this definitely didn't help him out in that fight. And, yeah, that was a stumbling block. And I mean, no shame losing to Carlos Ortiz, one of the greatest, you know, one of the a, a great lightweight number one, and one of the great Puerto Rican fighters. I think he was born in New York, but nonetheless, 
you know, uh, ethnically Puerto Rican and identified, you know, his family as Puerto Rican, one of the great Puerto Rican fighters mm-hmm. without question. And I mean, just a dangerous, dangerous fighter around that time who could hit box smooth as hell. And also from my, from my understanding, a super nice guy, but well, I met a guy where, you know, wonderful. I've heard nothing, nothing else. I've heard nothing except for he was a fantastic human being. Um, but a really, really good fighter. No shame in losing to that guy. However, uh, by that time, that kind of signaled a little bit more of a shaky um, going forward with Kenny Lane's career as a contender. A little bit more inconsistent, I would say. Um, it was a little bit more difficult for him to keep the winning streaks alive. And also, again, no shame. This era for the lightweight division and the kind of between lightweight and welterweight very very good you know like this was not the great time for a great time for kenny lane to come along unfortunately but I mean, that is the time a to get deep, deep deep division back then man you had a lot of rough and tough contenders guys that you know with multiple sanctioned bodies probably could pick up a strap in a different era but he was he had to go toe-to-toe with these dudes you know dudes like len matthews who was a monster from philadelphia or you know he had to go against former champ virgil akins a bunch of times um future junior welterweight champion carlos hernandez he had to go in there with like these were tough ass dudes you know what i mean and lane was actually winning a lot of these fights so don't get him wrong like he went on a pretty consistent streak after getting bludgeoned um by ortiz enough so that he was able to get a rematch with him this time for the lightweight championship which he really coveted and again he lost again but again that's not a big thing because ortiz at this point was at his absolute peak and was going to reign as champion throughout most of the 60s anyways you know with a couple of hiccups here and there Ortiz was that guy. And so, you know, losing to him, I mean, it kind of solidified Lang at that point that he was just going to be um, a top contender and a guy that was just always going to kind of miss getting over the hump. But that didn't mean anything bad because being a top contender in an era like that is still a very, very um, proud uh, career to be proud of. Yeah, no question, dude. You know, he, he fought uh, two very high-level champions, for you know just barely missed out he, it's not like he got absolutely washed or whatever except for against ortiz that one time and again no shame there um but like his career obviously started winding down after he got put through the grinder of you know the late 1950s and into the 1960s really difficult time during those divisions and I don't know exactly what it was that made him retire or why he retired um, the first time, but he retired. He got out of boxing and then something got a bug up his ass in the 1980s for whatever reason. And he figured out that, I guess, I don't know why he hadn't thought of this sooner. It was just simple math, but he only had 96 fights and he wanted to get to 100 for whatever reason. So he came back and he, he, fought four more times and got to 100 and called it quits after that so at the very least you know he's stuck to his goal but nonetheless you know uh yeah he, he wound think up making comeback think of the differences in errors right so around 1959 1960 when he's first about to fight ortiz for the junior welterweight title right during that time miles davis is getting ready to record kind of blue West Side Story is about to be out in movie theaters or on play or whatever it is around that time. Like, it's a whole different world. You know what I mean? Ali is about to win at the Summer Olympics. Like, you know, and then all of a sudden it's 1985. Fucking Thriller's been out for two years. 
Marvin Hagler and, and Thomas Hearns are about to go go to war for the middleweight championship. It's a whole different day glow era, you know, fueled by money and cocaine and all kinds of other stuff. It's like, it's crazy. So he made his professional debut when Rocky Marciano was heavyweight champion. Yep. And his last fight was when Michael Spinks was heavyweight champion. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> and, here's, and here's a little side thing, too, is that... Um, Again, I always have to reference old ring magazines, right? So in the mid-90s, there was a little blip in the beginning of the magazine, you know, when they had like the outside the ropes and other stuff, they were mm -hmm. just kind of... So they had one, a blip over there, and it was Kenny Lane. And it was talking about him saying that he wanted to make another comeback. And at this point, this was like 1995. <laughs> and it wasn't so much that he said that he was... He wanted to have like professional fights or whatever. I guess he was active in the gym again. He was training people, and he said that there was a guy in his gym that was that was a kid he was trying to teach that was talking a lot of shit and wasn't and wasn't being basically uncoach, un, uh, uncoachable. And Lane was getting very annoyed by this, and he was getting to the point where like they were you know always arguing stuff like that. And Lane said he challenged him to a fight, and he said he was getting himself in shape that he was going to fight this kid and beat him up, and then maybe take a couple more after that. And um, I guess nothing ever come, came of that because they said the dudes they, they said. At the end of the article, apparently the guy stopped going to the gym after Lane threw down a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, who would want to get their ass beat by like, you know, 60-year-old Kenny Lane? You know what I mean? Like, I and wouldn't. He, he would absolutely be down, all down to be thrown at, you know, throw hands with a guy like that. <laughs> Those old dudes were just like that. You know what I mean? Like you had, um, you had Billy Kahn who, you know, made headlines in 1990 by uh, knocking out or punching out a guy at a, at a convenience store that was trying to rob it. Um, fast forward, actually around the same year, 1990 was a year, weird year for old timers. Um, Buddy Rogers from the wrestling world, he got into a, <laughs> he got into an argument at a sub shop with somebody. Like he was trying to order a sandwich and the guy um, was being really, was being really rude to a person behind the counter. And when Rogers intervened, the guy called him an old man. And Rogers punched him, took him down, and they brawled all over the all over the restaurant. <laughs> and when they got done, they said, "Why, you know, when you're in your 60s, they said, why'd you pick a fight with a guy that big, even though Rogers won?" And Rogers goes, "No one calls Buddy Rogers an old man." <laughs> well, dude, they're like, if you believe them, there are like ten different stories about Jack Dempsey like fucking somebody up on the streets of New York. Oh. Like, I mean, again, that that's if you believe him, but that most famous one of him in the winter when he had a mink coat on and two dudes try to roll up and he's landed a couple of body punches and has left them writhing on the street. <laughs> yeah, dude, I've, I've there have been so many anecdotal stories about fighters, you know, getting mugged and then bap, bap, you know, something. I, I believe him. I mean, not all of them, obviously, but some of them are probably true. <clears throat> but yeah, I wouldn't want to get my ass kicked by old Kenny Lane, I'll tell you that much. Nah, nah, I'm not throwing hands with that guy. He's definitely gonna get in the ring and jab my head off and like hit me with some sneaky shit that I wouldn't know because he's an old timer and I'm good. <laughs> and see, and especially if he's feeling vengeful because you've been disrespecting him for a long time, he's gonna have a point to prove to really beat you up. So Yeah, exactly. Pass. I'm gonna yeah. pass on that shit. Good name, good name. Um another one though would be actually he just fought recently. Yori Boy Compass. <laughs> Man, I mean, Yori Boy Compass. And I what's guess. crazy enough for a guy his style and all the punishment he's taken over the years. <sighs> well, and it's and it's like, you know, I guess at this point we can't exactly, you know, uh 
blame George Foreman this many years on. It's just, <laughs> nah. it, it, it's just how it happens. But nonetheless, it's dude, it's so crazy. 120 plus fights, especially like in, in the, our times in this era, it doesn't happen that often. Very true. Dude. And like, what a tough, I mean, when he first came on the scene, what was his record when he first came out? Cause I'm not, I didn't bring it up yet, but like, um, he's a number of like ridiculous knockouts coming up to the point where before he fought Trinidad. Uh, let me look real quick. Cause I know, I know it was something wild when they brought up his, uh, his, like their records on, you know, and showed the record. Yes. 56 and 0. 56 and 0. Yeah. 56 and 0. And I don't know how many knockouts, but it's I know, like, I think I want to say the first time he went the distance was, um, <laughs> excuse me, I want to say the first time he went the distance, or I could be wrong, was with a forgotten contender named uh, Roger Turner. But, and that was one of his uh, first time being exposed on probably like TVKO or whatever it was. But yeah, Campus was that guy. He was just an absolute, you know, wrecking machine being compared to like Chavez, but it, you know, even more of a powerful puncher and like, you know, um, so by the time he fights Felix Trinidad, um, a young Trinidad at that for, uh, on the undercard of, I don't even know what it was, what undercard that was. Um, that was one of those fights that like people were just going to be salivating. If that live Twitter was around today. Oh my God, man. People would be going absolutely ape shit talking about what was going to happen there because campus had a big following himself and he had an aura about him with all the knockouts that he scored. And because you didn't really see him that much on TV. Like, you know, it's just still pre-YouTube era and internet era like that. So it was more so you just kind of heard by word of mouth that this dude was a wrecking ball. And then Trinidad, who had been featured on television at this point and had been knocked down and hurt by guys, you know, definitely not on the caliber of campus, like Anthony Stevens, then, yeah, this was like one of those can't-miss fights. And during the fight, too, when you're watching it, Ferdy Pacheco definitely has, like, some... He's really excited about campus. Like, he's just bragging about him saying, you know, kind of dismissing Trinidad almost to a degree. Like, yeah, if campus lands one of these shots, I mean, that's going to be lights out. This campus is a monster, I'm telling you. He's like Mike Tyson power. And if he take a, take a punch, oh, no one's going to beat him. And then almost like validating their claims, campus lands one of the shortest left hooks you'll ever see in history, right? Like that just three-inch bip like that. And Trinidad just drops. And near Bobby Chez, oh, that was like the shortest left hook I've ever seen. I told you, Bobby. I told you this campus is a monster. <laughs> Meanwhile, Trinidad, even though he got dropped, he gets up and starts using fucking campus's head as catcher's mitt. But campus is taking all those punches too. I mean, it was bad until what happens in round four. Man, it's it's a pretty like it's definitely not usually listed among the most like brutal knockouts or whatever because it's not like a one punch knockout like that. And on top of that, Felix Trinidad had some better kind of like one punch knockouts. But I mean, this is like rough because campus gets hurt and then he backs up to the ropes and it's one of those situations where he just can't control his body. And so Trinidad's just like bang, 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 you know, like, like back and forth and the fools are just, you know, whiplash from getting, cause he's like right up against the ropes. It's bad dude. Um, And it's one of those situations that showed once again, because he showed it before that and after, before that fight and after the, the campus fight, that if you knock Felix Trinidad down, all you're doing is pissing him off and waking him up. I mean, you're with very, very few exceptions. <laughs> very few fighters knocked him down and wound up winning the fight after that. You usually just pissed him off. Yeah, yeah. You had to actually beat him down like Hopkins did, and campus definitely didn't do that. 
And um, yeah, high top Tito is a whole different type of beast. But, <laughs> you know, Campus was, was one of those guys that after he got knocked out by Trinidad, sure, he was still a high-ranking contender, but he loses again to, at this point, was still a little-known um, Jose Luis Lopez. And that fight, he got his ass kicked in. It wasn't, you know, like, Lopez was a different type of animal, too. A guy that, if he only took his shit more seriously, who knows what the what type of... Um, that was uh, the problem. All he liked to do, I mean, there's nothing wrong with what he liked to do, but you can't do that as a professional athlete. Like, he liked to smoke weed, he liked to drink, and he liked to surf. Yeah, he was a dude who literally liked to smoke weed, drink, and surf. Yes. And, and, was he, was, and he was a good-ass fighter, too. That's the a thing. Very a very good fighter. <laughs> a very good fighter, had a number of really exciting fights, and that was, that was the Lopez who wasn't even really training and shit. So it makes you wonder, like, wow, you know. What I'm saying, man, like, when he first came on the scene and obliterated that Eamon, uh, Eamon Lachlan, I think it was, poor guy never fought again, um, destroyed him, and then he destroys campus immediately afterwards. And people were just like, oh, shit, like, who is this dude? You know, there was a lot of talk about him fighting De La Hoya, fighting Trinidad, fighting Corte. And then he did fight Corte. Mm-hmm. And in the fight, if you watch it, he barely does anything. He just eats Corte's jab for most of the fight while following around. But the two times he finally actually, like, unloaded his left hook, he dropped Corte badly, hurt the shit out of him, and hurt him earlier in the fight, too. Like, he was really, you know, he was a menace. But he just never took his shit seriously. And but I mean, campus gets beat down by him, and so at that point, people are going to realize, and I think the majority of fans thought that campus was at like a, you know, a set, like one of those dudes that he wasn't going to reach the heights that people initially thought he would, but he's going to be a fun contender nonetheless that would make for fun fights, and he absolutely did, until he finally catches a break and he fights a young um, Raúl Marquez, who was undefeated, IBF junior middleweight champion, and. Really good fighter, but a guy who was vulnerable enough that campus might have had a chance, a better chance than his past two championship fights. Yeah, you know, Raul Marquez was a former Olympian, a uh, very good fighter, you know, um, just a guy who very talented, not super fast, decent power. But the problem was that, like, he didn't really do anything like one really good thing, like really well. Like he was just kind of an all around fighter, but then mm-hmm. he had a really glaring weakness, which was thin skin. And I oh guess, yeah. and I guess, yeah, just, I guess just his eye sockets, the way they are like designed dude just was, and, and he was kind of not super in control of himself. So he would headbutt a lot, like, or he wasn't headbutting, but he would, you know, knock heads with opponents a lot. And cause he was a Southpaw too. So it was like, you know, we saw a lot more Raul Marquez blood than we probably wanted to, man. That was a big problem. Absolutely. And Marquez, at this point, too, his last fight before this was against the unknown Keith Mullins. Campus was originally supposed to get that fight. He pulled out with an injury or whatever. Mullins came in. Mullins, I mean, caused death by a thousand cuts, if you want to call it like that. Marquez's face was gory, badly, badly damaged. I mean, we're talking bloody puffed everything he had to get a bunch of stitches this really grotesque and he probably should have taken a lot of time off from that like a lot a lot of time and he didn't he only took a few months before he was back in there on the pay-per-view undercard the delahoya undercard against campus and his face wasn't you know completely healed up yet like you know facial wise he looked okay but like clearly it just and even though he was winning early on you know, he was doing really good because campus was a notoriously slow starter 
his face started getting busted up quickly, you know? And before you knew it, it, it was just a mass of just absolute, just like gore and blood and swelling, and you couldn't see anything. And a guy like Campus was on the rampage, and they had to stop it, so he became champion and probably. Yeah, it was a it was a bad uh, situation for Marquez. He had that was just kind of his his downfall and his kind of fatal flaw for a, a handful of fights in his career. He just couldn't kind of keep it together. Good fighter, but just never really got over the hump. And that mm-hmm. was a big reason why. Oh, I mean, it's just, it was bad. Yeah, that was a bad one. But you know what? Campus ended up going on the best run of his career after that. Had a couple yeah. of wins on on, uh, on TV, I remember, when they were, like, doing stuff on Fox or whatever channel it was. And, yeah, it, you know, he was going on a decent run until, but you knew eventually that he was going to be fed to, like, an up-and-coming guy that someone was going to, you know, take yeah. a chance on. And so. Especially with 147 and 154 at this time. Yeah, yeah, nah, dude. Either someone was going to move her from 147. Couldn't stay away forever. Yeah. But also to be mentioned, too, this is around the era when the 96 Olympians were turning pro and being yep. fast-tracked to world championships. And and two major studs in the junior middleweight division were David Reed and Fernando Vargas. Both of them kind of went on their own little separate paths, but both yep. of them would fast-track to championships. So Vargas, and what was it, only like his 14th, yeah, his 14th pro fight, ends up fighting campus. And... You know, I mean, Vargas, before he got ruined by Trinidad and others, I mean, that dude was a sensation. And poor Campus got his ass kicked in that fight, man. I mean, there were levels to that. And Campus is tough as there is, but he just was getting bludgeoned. I remember near the end of it, too, at one point, his mouthpiece gets knocked out. And Vargas, and the referee didn't stop it because you know, there wasn't really a lull in the action. And Vargas just unloaded with, like, combination after combination. You saw mouth, um, Campus's mouth all bloody. I'm just like, Ugh. you know, it was, it was brutal. Yeah, dude, and that was also one of the first fights to, I think it might have been the first fight where uh, he stayed in the corner. Yeah. And that, like, haunted him for several years because he, at least on message boards and, you know, those kinds of places, people were always like, oh, he's the quitter. He's always quitting on his stool type of shit when, you know, you, you it, dude, how many fucking years on from no moss are we? And people still say, like, I'll fucking post a photo of Roberto Duran standing over oh, like quit, the corpse of some fucking guy, and they'll be like, No moss. And I'm like, God damn it. Like, it, it'll never go away. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not surprised, but that's kind of where it started for Compass, the, the people labeling him as a quitter or whatever when he was. He fell victim to a very good Fernando Vargas, at, you know, when he was in the younger portion of his career and before he had really started to get into bad trouble and stuff like that. And he was still a very good fighter. Oh, man, he was. Yeah. When he had those those frosty tips in the front back in the day and he was spitting on people after he knocked them down and shit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Campus's career just kept on going on after that. But I mean, it was very topsy turvy. Like he. Well, like, I mean, not after the Vargas fight, he still had a decent run. Like, he lost to Obercar, which yeah, is no... beat Tony Ayala Jr.'s ass, and I'll always endorse that. I will That's always... what I was about to say. That was probably his last profile, high-profile win, but that was a hell of a fight, too. I will, I will always get behind somebody doing that. Absolutely. Um, ESPN Friday Night Fights. Remember oh, this? Fucking Ayala piece of shit. Yeah, massive. Ayala come back at this point. Um... His whole card has been, his whole career has been televised since he came back from bullshit pay-per-views all the way up until this point. And 
yeah, because it's boxing, and he has a name, even though he went through that. I know, yeah, it was right? right. I think it was the following year that he fought on ESPN with the fucking ankle monitor. The ankle monitor, I believe. Yeah. But at this point, he's undefeated in his comeback, and if he wins this fight, there's talk of him fighting De La Hoya, because of course, right? You know, and um, it was a good fight. No, you know, as much as I hate Ayala, that was a good fight, and probably young Ayala would have ravaged um campus, but. This is an old, fat, out-of-jail Ayala who just, whatever. And Campus eventually starts beating him up, beating him up, beating him up. You see Ayala on the ropes just like, what the fuck? And Campus is just working, you know what I mean? And then finally, I think Ayala quit in his corner himself, too, citing a broken hand or something like that. And there was no broken hand. He just got whooped, you know what I mean? He couldn't handle anything anymore. Got his ass broken. Yeah. But, um... You know, from there, he wins that fight. And then, again, he moves that into another title fight. This time against uh, Daniel Santos, who, again, beats him up, stuff like that, and stops him. But somehow, uh, I don't understand this, and this is the weird timing of, like, De La Hoya's early 2000s. He somehow got himself a title fight, on pay-per-view, no less, against De La Hoya. You know, like, they, they... I mean, I couldn't say specifically why they chose you know, Yori Bori Campus instead of somebody else. I, I don't know. But I do know for sure that they were working back up to the second Mosley fight. You know, yeah. so like I, my guess would be that they just needed somebody who was like a name, but like a safe name. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So that's probably why they got him. But like, I was going to say, dude, that's, I totally forgot about that Daniel Santos fight. That's a dude who was around for like a minute that never gets talked about ever and was like a massive pain in the ass style wise, like had a number of fights that were just putrid because he was so fucking like a nightmare to fight. And on top of that, you just brought up the dude, uh, you brought up, um, my God, fucking stone brain. Hello. Fucking David Reed. You yeah. brought up David Reed and Daniel Santos was the dude who fucked up David Reed's eye in the and I think it was the Pan Am games, if I'm not mistaken, in like ninety-five or something like that. Uh David Reed beat Daniel Santos in the finals of that, and Daniel Santos supposedly like gave him a whooping and fucked up his eye, and day and Reed wound up getting the decision and it caused a massive fucking riot because I want to say the Pan Am games were in like San Juan or something like that, and Daniel oh. Santos is Puerto Rican. So it wound up being a massive fiasco. So it's a little bit of trivia for people listening in and paying attention. Daniel Santos is the one who messed up David Reed's eye and fast-tracked his career at 154. But in any case, um, yeah, I'd totally forgotten about that fight at all. And then in the lead-up to the De La Hoya fight, Bob Arum talked about the potion. You remember? No. Bro. Oh, God, I'm going to have to go find this now. But oh, no. What did Arum do now? <laughs> Bro, well, in the lead up to the De La Hoya fight, Bob Arum was telling promoters that Yori Boy Campos had drank some. I couldn't, I don't remember which tribe he was citing, but he said that there was some indigenous Mexican tribe that had a special potion that Yori Boy Campos drank so he could beat Oscar De La Hoya. <laughs> kind of like Livingstone Bramble using his former basketball coach as the witch doctor before the Rain Mancini fights. Or 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 Aram bringing in the the African dude claiming he was a witch doctor before Ray Leonard fucking Ayub Kalule and Ayub Kalule is like, dude, I don't even I haven't even been back here, bro. I live in a totally different European country. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> oh yeah, it was crazy. I think either oh, at one point yeah. two, um, 
Duran was spooked about Esteban De Jesus because he thought that De Jesus was practicing uh, sorcery. Oh man, the seventies and eighties were a different time, different time. No, but yeah, this I I remember this, and everybody was nobody took it serious. Everybody's cracking up about it, and of course, sure enough, that's what wound up happening. Uh, Yori Boykampis basically just, you know. He he basically just took punches, didn't really do a whole lot against De La Hoya, and then quit pretty much in his corner. Like nothing really happened. And so the the legend continued. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and from there his career just kind of like peppered out. Like he would get, yeah. you know, he would use that as an opponent. He fought John Duddy at the garden and you know, a few others like that. But his most high profile fights afterwards were against randomly against the Camacho family. You know, um, he fought, what was that? He fought Camacho Sr. in a, one of those really weird-ass pay-per-views that I definitely did not watch. <laughs> but somehow, Camacho, Camacho's another one that just fought on forever and ever and ever. And he, um, you know, I was in a, I was a draw in a fight that I've never watched and don't intend to. Yeah, I couldn't tell you anything about it. I don't know. <laughs> but the fact that Campus ends up having a draw with ancient Camacho is kind of pathetic. And then soon after, Camacho gets murdered. And after that, you know, I think that compelled his kid to fight campus, right? Because he wanted to get revenge or something like that. Oh, I I don't remember the exact timeline, but I but yeah, they he did fight him back to back. I don't remember the timeline about his death. Or actually, anything. no, no, I take that back. No, this was two thousand nine, so Camacho actually died a few years later, so that's what it was. But I mean, yeah, I think it was just the fact that like he fought a draw with him that Camacho Junior felt compelled to fight him after that. Dude, Camacho Junior. I'm not trying to just like slag the guy, but God, dude, that was one of the most frustrating early 2000s the leha fight and oh god dude i hated it i hated it hated it but no I mean, uh, you, you remember not to get off course but you remember during the leha fight after the fight's over and he sees leha celebrating and this like you know he's such a spoiled little brat he runs over to his uh his corner in the management he didn't win the fight he didn't win the fight like just throwing a, a whole like oh dude he had like a total panic attack like about the cut and then yeah. you know claiming he couldn't see dude and the probably the best thing is that like everybody saw through it writers saw through it the commission saw through it that was one of the first times that they even like overturned a decision to a no contest that might have been the first instance where they did it because they were just like bro this guy quit what the fuck oh that was so bad dude it was so awful but yeah you know uh campus from that point on, you know, it's not like a whole lot of his career. Like he fights a handful of names, Matt Vanda. Remember Matt Vanda? God, Jesus, Matt yeah, Vanda. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, dude was on ESPN a number of times. Yeah, like weird just... tattoos and shit, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. Anyway, but no, you know, there were a handful of names and a handful of like recognizable fighters. Anthony Bonsante, our our guy, our main man. Actually, you know what? I, I, I rock with Bonsante because he's the one that sent uh, um, IL into retirement. That's that is true. Yeah, that is true. Number one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he gave him his second and second loss, yeah. retired his ass. But yeah, you know, not a whole lot of re recognizable names except for he retired in 2018. Actually, he retired in 2016 initially, and then he retired in 2018 after making a brief comeback. Mm. Our boy just fought like two months ago, man. This fool just fought two months ago. So we're talking about 1987 to 2023. This guy's been fighting almost the entire time I've been alive. Yeah. Yeah, both of us, we were like, what, you were probably four, I was like three. So. <laughs> Amazing. 
So, I, I mean, hey, dude, we're not trying to say that Yori Boy Campus is the cream of the crop, creme de la creme here, but homie's been fighting a when long turned, time. When he turned professional, Hulk Hogan was getting ready to wrestle Andre the Giant or going through the feud of that. And He's, fast forward now, and it's like... I, <laughs> brother, he was yeah. about to be the first to press that giant over his head. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Wait, who, uh, who do you have? All right, let's see what we got here, man. We got a got a nice list we can get through. All right, let's let's talk about a little bit of uh, total rubbish sack, Fireman Jim. <laughs> now you know he's got a he's got a couple of good historical asterisks to his name. You know, honestly, um, despite the fact that he was a total racist shitbag for pretty much the to the end of his days, to my knowledge, um, he fought for a really long time. He encountered a lot of big names from light heavyweight to heavyweight during his time. And I mean, you know, we're also talking about just, uh, even if we're not just comparing the chronological time and saying, uh, he was the longest fighter, you know, had the longest career or whatever he fought again, kind of like how we were talking about with Kenny Lane. Amazingly, he made his, uh, professional debut in 1893, the year after James Corbett defeated, uh, John L. Sullivan for the kind of semi-inaugural, you know, modern heavyweight championship. And he fought all the way into the mid-1920s to when Jack Dempsey was champion. I mean, that's just a lot of history and a lot of change to the game, a lot of change to society, a lot of shit going on, bro. Crazy. It's true. Like, when you talk about long careers of, like, say, a guy like Holmes or Foreman, stuff like that, um the world has changed not the boxing game so much you know what i mean when you that's talk what about i'm the, saying is so much has gone on you talk about these turn of the century guys like jim flynn or peter Mayer or guys like that who had ridiculously long ass careers um there's so much that have changed they were still at the tail end of the bail uh, the bare bare knuckle era where that still went on a little bit you know what i mean like when boxing first incorporated gloves it was like some skin tight bullshit you know what i mean like there was right. really and we talked about this recently. There wasn't just like you flipped a switch and the next day everyone was fighting with the big poofy gloves. Nah, man. It, there was a big changeover for a long time. And even the skill-wise, too, when you think about it. You know, from the primitive era of Sullivan, you're still kind of like doing this. And then Corbett coming in, you know, with his nuances and Peter Jackson on the scene and George Dixon in the lower waist. Like, you, you're starting to see a change in the style and the scientificness of the sport. And Flynn is a part of all of that. You know what I mean? Not really, because he was just a drunken Billy goat. Like, his style didn't change. But, like, you get the yeah, sense he of... he wasn't the most skilled dude, but he saw no, but it. Evolution was just happening. Like, I've, you know, a lot of evolution was happening very quickly in the sport. 100%, yeah. No question, dude. Um, From all accounts, and there is some video, too, of him. So we can see. He seems like he was, um, I mean, I guess to put it somewhat kindly, a tricky fighter. He was rough. Definitely rough. Uh, a guy who was not afraid to headbutt, not afraid to elbow, push, shove, uh, do all sorts of rabbit punch, all sorts of things that would have been considered even in those times not good, you know, things that could have gotten you a warning or disqualified outright. He did a lot of those things, but he's very tough uh, and also could hit, hit a little bit, at least enough, that he was, uh, you know, probably the most famous thing that he did, I would imagine, would be he was the guy who knocked Jack Dempsey clean out early on, earlier on in his career. 
and it wound up being a somewhat storied fight because for a number of years people were saying it was a fix it was set up it never happened etc i mean according to jack dempsey it was a legit knockout according to him according to him it was just a time in his career when you know there was too much going on he was doing too much he was not eating very much you know he's getting paid shit etc but nonetheless that's probably the most famous thing uh that fireman jim flynn did but dude he fought a lot of names a lot of names i mean you know he's most famous obviously like you said for the dempsey fight he also um jack uh jack johnson for the heavyweight championship where he infamously got um disqualified for trying to ram his head in the giant in the johnson's gut and groin and anywhere else he could um sam langford a number of times you name it he fought them. like there was a who's who and even though he was definitely super duper racist, he wasn't afraid to, um, he didn't draw the color line unlike a lot of his um, contemporaries during that time. I guess that's, you know, the, you got the fucking lady justice trying to figure out what, 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 <laughs> what way, you know, do you want the guy to be just avoiding all black fighters or do you want him to be fighting all the black fighters, but then talking racist shit to them as he's fighting? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, um, you know, he he really did fight a lot of and and multiple times. He fought Jack Don, Johnson multiple times, Sam Langford multiple times. Even just that on its own makes him stand out as a white fighter in those times because most fighters, I mean, for whatever reason, whether it was they they simply were afraid of black fighters. I'm sure there were fighters who were afraid of black fighters, and I'm and I'm also sure that there were instances where they were just saying, "Dude, I don't want the backlash." Like, mm-hmm. I'll fight black fighters, but I'm not trying to fucking hear it from the public or have somebody come after me because I'm fighting them. Like, I'm not justifying nothing. I'm simply saying I could see that being the case. But Absolutely. Fireman Jim Flynn was clearly a guy. If you look at his record, he didn't give a fuck, bro. you fight nah, everybody. Bro, like, and it's not just Langford, you know, guys like that. Like, he fought a, a, all those tough white guys from that era, too, and the top-level ones. Um, Luther McCarthy, for instance, the uh, uncrowned, they called him the uh, the, the main white hope for Josh, uh, for Jack Johnson, the white, so, the white hope champion, yeah, yes, the white hope champion, and apparently the best out of lot when it came to white contenders before he had that freak accident and died in the ring. Um, he fought Gunboat Smith, he fought Carl Morris, um, even fucking middleweight champions like Billy Papke and Mike Twin Sullivan, and guys for that matter. Al Kaufman was another fighter from that era, and he wasn't winning most of these fights. In fact, he was getting whooped in a lot of them because, you know, especially that at this point, he turned pro, like you said, well, 1893, this is 1910. He's been pro for a long time. And, you know, with a lot of fights in him, he's fighting guys who, you know, really tough fighters. Like, but he's still hanging in there and he's fighting all these guys and he's getting, you know, as good as he got and stuff like that. But there are levels to this. He was just no, he was just a pain in the ass to fight because you knew if you were going to fight him, unless you caught him early, which was possible, you're going to have a long time with him. He's going to do some dirty shit to you. It's going to piss you off. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's going to be a long night. Uh, no question. And I mean, for the most part, it's, it's not like there were, you go down his record and you find a number of knockouts and TKOs. So it's not like he was the toughest guy on the face of the planet, but a lot of those came toward the end of his career too, like the late 19 teens and into the 1920s. I'm trying to look, I want to say, I wanted to say he fought Fred Fulton. Yeah, he did fight Fred Fulton. Yeah. Jack Dillon. He fought a whole right, bunch yeah, of Zavinsky, Jack Dillon, Fred Fulton. Oh, man. Man, he he fought a whole bunch of fight. Jim Coffey, the uh Ross Common Giant, who at the mm-hmm. time was considered a, a killer. 
and obviously wasn't. We know a lot of that was propaganda now, but nonetheless, well, you know, he, he was fighting anybody. And that, I don't know, what is that worth when he's not beating them? I don't know, but he was fighting them. And that is important. Um, it's actually pretty crazy, though. And I'm happy to to post the newspaper reports of these. But I, I want to say I briefly mentioned it on some other show. But I'm not going to go into detail just because I'm not going to repeat the words, especially on a fucking podcast that's going to go up on YouTube. But nonetheless, just to let people know, because it's worth reading about, because it's satisfying and hearing racists get their cup of comeuppance and shit is always great. Yeah, it's awesome. But <laughs> Fireman Jim Flynn, both times that he fought, first of all, he did get a knockout win over Sam Langford, which in and of itself is pretty crazy, but he paid the fucking price for it real bad. Sam Langford gave it back to him like Multiple real times. bad. Yeah, real bad. Gave it back to him and then some. But uh during both fights with jack johnson for the first fight it was a non-title fight and he gets in there with jack johnson and as he's you know not doing very well jack johnson's basically just frustrating the shit out of him he did this twice i, I won't even repeat it for the second fight let's just say that it happened two times it just happened to be the second fight was a world heavyweight title fight but both times fireman jim flynn was getting frustrated by jack johnson and his tactics and he's getting held and he's getting kind of punched in the clinch he doesn't like it can't do shit two separate times he turns to the referee and starts yelling about how jack johnson's a racial slur this an epithet that and then literally seconds later both times gets fucking knocked shitless like absolutely flattened like a like a worm and mm -hmm. it's 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 beautiful even just reading the ringside reports from people who themselves probably believed the same shit that this fool believed were like, oh my God. Some of the things he was saying were like, ooh, you're making us blush, bro. They even were happy to see him get his ass whooped. So it's it's good come up and story for sure. Absolutely no question. Happy to post the reports because they're great. There's a there is a film on YouTube. I'm not sure if it's still on there or not. I would assume so, of Langford and Flynn and some guy I guess was a film collector enhanced it like really well to the point that it looks pretty well like kind of modern today you know what I mean like it's not the fast things that you usually see it's more slow down everything yeah is how really they're all like moving weird and shit yeah, yeah. the frame rate's not, all fucked up it's not like that it actually looks pretty good and so you can get it it's one of the um few videos where you can get a good sense of uh Sam Link for the fighter and he was beautiful to watch, man. That dude would have fit in an Eddie era, would have whooped a lot of ass in Eddie era. Like he his was... sense of distance was amazing. Oh, how tiny he was, and the way he just kind of kept his hands down too, and the way he fought like that, like you know, it's almost you see, people are like, oh, keep your hands down. Blah, blah, blah. Nah, I mean, he fights like some of you see the amateurs, how they fight and stuff. Like he just knew what he was doing. What works for you works, and he was incredible. So at one point, um, during the fight. You're watching it, and they're like they're they're exchanging or something. And Langford throws a shot and actually goes off balance a little bit because he swung on. And he did that. He did a cartwheel. He cartwheels himself back in the fucking. He throws a shot, goes into like a half a cartwheel, lands on his feet, and then simultaneously lands an uppercut on Flynn, who just kind of stood there like an idiot, <laughs> you know. And fucking yeah, crazy. He was a mm -hmm. you well, you can see on film that Langford is you know he's executing pull counters. He's drawn in, you know, setting traps like the dude was not just some mindless offensive machine or something like that. Like they kind of say, you know, did, he would have been a nightmare to fight in his heyday. Oh, my God. Yeah. And 
he had one punch knockout power too. So combine that with you know his sense of everything going on in the ring and having one punch knockout power. I mean, that dude was just a a nut. And and he definitely shut the shit out of Fireman Jim Flynn's mouth. Which thanks, guys. I appreciate that. Hundred years later, love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just one of those dudes. But he's had such a long. He did have a long career, and then like that's just a lot of evolution that happened quickly in the game. When you go from John L. Sullivan to Jack Dempsey, think of all everything that's happened from that from that time period. There was a lot of great fighters. You know what I mean? A lot of great fighters. And like you said, I think that's what what really gets me is how much the game changed and how much the world changed uh, in that time, going from basically, you know, the earliest developments of automobiles to now a whole bunch of fucking people have gotten them and stuff like that. That's a pretty massive development in society in and of itself. But yeah, um, definitely somebody who uh, who and didn't didn't Jack Dempsey also get revenge on Farrell and Jinflin? Pretty sure he did. I would have to look it up. It's such a long career. They'd have oh, to really gosh, I don't even remember. But in any case, yeah, long, super fucking long career, and especially during that time period, dude, uh, when fights with the, you know, less padding in the gloves and so much more facial damage and stuff like that. It's crazy that anybody would have a career that long. Absolutely, you know, and um, I guess you can segue that into the next dude, like uh, talk about him briefly, Peter Mayer, who was another yeah. guy, you know? You know what? I'm about to do some really quick math right now, but I believe that he might be, have uh, technically the longest career. It's just that it's uh, because of so much of it extends outside of what is confirmed, like on box rec. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, you know, some people go by. So a, a little secret, just in case anybody doesn't know, anybody who's listening and is his uh interested in looking up fighters careers and kind of learning and stuff like that i'm still learning too i'm not saying i'm the master but a number of fighters from around this time from around the late 1800s and into the early 1900s and some of them even into the mid 1900s go to their cyber boxing zone page because the box rec page is helpful for sure but cyber boxing zone will list a lot of exhibition bouts and a lot of other stuff that was not like professional bouts and a lot of other information too so anyway, long story short, Peter Mars definitely without question, uh, he he fought effing forever, bro. Like, God. here I can't I mean, even read. And, I'm so blind, I can't read shit. But yeah, and he fought absolute who's who of his era too. If you just go through his record and you see all the way from 1888 when he started his career, all the way till 1911 when it ended. Yeah, and, and like, was fighting exhibitions beyond that even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was a dude who just. Fuck, man. All right. So 1888, this like way precedes uh, Corbett Sullivan. I it's mean, like at the time or something like that, he had had the longest career or something like that. I'm not even sure at this point. I got to think of when um, John L. Sullivan became recognized heavyweight champion. That uh, was the Dominic McCaffrey fight. Oh, was that? That wasn't Patty Ryan? You know, dude, there's it depends on which history guy you're talking to. Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? But like some of them say Dominic McCaffrey, some of them what say year it was, was Kill Rain. Um, oh, what year was that? So blind. Like the um Patty Ryan fight or whatever. That was probably like around the same period. It was the 1880s. Well, and and 
the Patty Ryan fight, like making it, yeah, it was the 1880s. And the Patty Ryan fight, listing it, that makes a little bit more sense because he was considered the English European or the English heavyweight champion. So it was a way, in a way, kind of like a consolidation of the heavyweight title or whatever. But it depends on who you ask. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. But still, that's pretty fucking wild. I mean, to think about that. So it's 1888. He's still clearly in the bare knuckle there. I'm definitely sure he took uh, took uh, partook in a lot of those type of fights, and even more so of a turnover from Fireman Jim Flynn because, like, he came from the um, clearly from still the London prize rings. Um, that that whole that whole scene, like that was what they were doing back then. You know what I mean? Like wearing gloves, even though Sullivan was one of the early guys that make that kind of like a popular component because he preferred wearing gloves as opposed to as opposed to just you and his knuckles um that still was kind of looked upon as being like a thing you know what i mean like, oh, you want to wear gloves be a real man fight the you know old style bare knuckle da, 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 da. yep and for sure sullivan's popularity i think in turn helped you know bring the popularity of gloves in too when he was like yeah we always got to fight with gloves and stuff like that and then soon others other other people started you know taking on the same the same thing but yeah dude from that point and when he comes in and then from the late 1890s too that's when he starts really cooking with like the whole era of guys that he was supposed to fight with and after sullivan loses to corbett and then corbett i think at one point kind of like you know more or less retired unofficially or something because he wasn't fighting you know what i mean um mayor and bob fitzsimmons were put in a fight for the unofficial heavyweight championship which fitzsimmons won by a first round knockout yeah um I think the fight was held or something like that too around there because they had to be careful where they were holding it. it. Yep. And Peter Maher was considered, especially to get, man, gets me excited because my brain starts going and my mouth can't go as fast as my brain starts working. But it's, it's a really exciting time, this transition into a kind of more modern version of boxing because when the London prize ring rules start going out, like we were saying earlier with the gloves, they didn't go out overnight things the thing is a lot of things could be negotiated so some fights were with gloves some weren't some could kind of incorporate some of the london prize ring rules and there were some of these fighters from like the 1860s 70s and 80s who were used to fighting the london prize ring rules which incorporated wrestling and yeah. a lot of those fighters would say fuck it like let let's fight but then we'll wrestle too like we'll have a wrestling match like uh, we'll fight but then i'll i bet you x amount of money i could throw you you know what i mean yeah. and and so a number of fighters would say that kind of shit and a number of fighters were used to fighting that style so for somebody like peter Maher to have over 100 knockouts in this era when number one a lot of fighters were fighting really infrequently and number two you know like just getting those kinds of clean knockouts that shit just didn't really happen and this guy was doing it. He was considered a power punching monster in a time where there weren't really that many. Absolutely. And so finding a guy like Fitzsimmons, who was a monster puncher himself, you knew that fight wasn't going to go to distance. But <clears throat> find out also, even though Meyer has a major punch and is a strong dude, can't take a punch. That ended up becoming his undoing because a lot of his record after that you start seeing is littered with knockouts and they're early knockouts and not like, you know, they lasted very long. If you caught him early, you can clip him. Chances are he's going to get flagged. That's the old, uh, what do they call it? The, the puncher's paradox. I want to say they, they called it for a number of years that like big punchers just tend to not take punches very well. Exactly. And 
that was his thing. But I mean, you find it, especially as so at this point, turn point 1888. Now he's been a decade pro in the 18 in the late 1890s. He's still going in with a who's who of guys, like you said. He fought Fitzsimmons, and you know he got drilled. He fights on uh, Kid McCoy, you know, one of the more eccentric minds in boxing history, but an absolute badass during his prime. And he never really loses to him too, but that's no shame. McCoy was another guy who had a major knockout punch during that time, so he was flattening a lot of dudes. Um, Gus Rulin, you know, Jim, uh, Tom Sharkey. Um, Philadelphia Jack O'Brien, who was always, you know, flirting around with the heavyweight division, perennial loser Joe Grimm, who fought everybody there was, and yeah, you know, just fought a lot of different names all up until, and he kept on going and going and going, and he would fight the same names over and over. Luckily, there was a couple of dudes he did not fight, like for instance, he never got in there with Jim Jeffrey, surprisingly, because their their you know careers overlapped, and Jeffrey's absolutely would have poleaxed him. Um, and there's, you know, other contemporaries from the time, too. Like, you know, there was a chance he could have fought John L. Sullivan because he was from that time. I'm sure there were discussions for a fight like that to be made. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And, yeah. And just think about that, too, because by the time he retired in 1911 and where he came from in 1888, so much evolution, again, in the sport, even more so, because by the time Flynn turned pro, there was already, like, you know, starting to, like, work toward gloves. And there was, there was already a gap between when Mayer turned pro and when Flynn turned pro. So for him, all the way going into 1911, fucking Joe Gans was dead at that point. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. Yeah, dude, it's that's pretty wild, too, especially because the size of like what was considered a, like John L. Sullivan. People were like, wow, he's huge. I'm the size of John L. I'm bigger than John L. Sullivan. You know what I mean? And Peter Maher is about the same size. That was a big fighter. And I mean, Jim Jeffries was considered a step up in terms of heavyweight size. And he was only about six foot six, one and like a little over 200 pounds. He was just built is all. And people were like, Oh my God, he's huge. So, I mean, you know, it's a pretty big transition and, and realistically Peter Maher probably would have been a light heavyweight these days, if not even a little smaller, if he was cutting weight, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So he's a name. See who else we got. We got a couple more names on here. We don't have to mention everybody, of course. And there are some names on these lists that are like, eh, dude, we don't need to talk about these fools who like fought one time 30 years after they retired and you know, just to fucking make it a thing. But actually, um, a really good name that is not on the vast majority of these lists, and you're not gonna find on the vast majority of these lists that I'll bring up real quick, just a fun guy to talk about, in my opinion, because of the time period, the transition and all the changes that were happening during his career. He actually was credited with having his first fight in the 1840s, like one, eight, four zeros. And mm -hmm. in his last fight was in the 1890s, 90s, Jim Mace, Jim <laughs> fucking Mace, bro. You know, Gypsy, right? that's what he called himself whether or not he really was i couldn't say but yes gypsy jim mace um you know if there's a lot of people you and i've talked about this we're not really big fans of james corbett but a lot of people like to talk about james corbett is like oh he introduced modern boxing you know there was no skill before james corbett which is not even remotely close to being true whatsoever that's some whitewashing of the shit both literally and figuratively but <laughs> But I mean, you know, by that time, dude, you know, Jem Mace had already been fucking around the world and back again, literally had gone on international tours where he was 
showing people how, I mean, putting on exhibitions on boxing, wrestling, uh, working out with Indian clubs. He was literally going to colleges and posing in these sports poses. And they were like drawing the shit. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. You know, like people had not seen a lot of this shit before. And so I'm not saying that he's the master. I'm simply saying that he probably deserves the moniker of like, you know, father of modern boxing way more than James Corbett does. And whether or not his fights in the 1840s are verified, I truly could not say. And I haven't looked it up myself, but one thing is for sure. He fought for several decades uh, and fought at fairly high level, even to when he was like not supposed to be fighting anymore and was an old man. Um, so anyway, just a fun, fun dude to talk about for a number of reasons. Totally, man. Uh, crazy era. Um, had a number of fights. A lot of them, you know, kind of on the don't know if they're on the up and up. I mean, you get that sense from reading. Totally. Uh, totally. That the uh, pictorial history of boxing that one that was written by Nat Fleischer and Sam Andrick, they have a pretty, a very, very actually um, good um, beginning of what's going, you know, the beginnings of boxing all the way from James Fig all the way to uh, the gloved era. So when you're talking about that, they give an overview of a lot of guys, you know, we talk about Daniel Mendoza, they talk about Tom King, they talk about, you know, the, a lot of different champions, Bold Bendingo, and you know all the yeah, other ones. Tom King is who Mace lost his lost the English championship to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of different guys, and so um, by the time they they bring up, yeah, they get to the Mace era. There's like certain fights they're like, oh yeah, neither guy struck a blow for whatever reason. The referee threw them both out, or they weren't gonna do this and that, or you know they fought for a little bit, but Mace clearly clearly outclassed them. Like he was popular dude and he was legitimately the champion he just a lot of those fights from back then you didn't know what they were going to do or how things were going to turn yeah. out and it was still dirty too like you could still knee and throw people down and guys would deliberately fall down and some of them literally happened outside of a tent because yeah. it would be like somebody challenged him as he was in his traveling show and he'd be like fucking let's go and they exactly. and that was a fight and that so, was you know nobody sanctioned it it was just a fight but with all that being said, you know, boxing back then definitely was some just some brutal shit that had as much wrestling as it did and fist fighting involved in it. But Mace was one of the early practitioners um, who, like, evolved from the Mendoza style of, like, because Mendoza is considered by a lot of people as, like, one of the first people of, like, you know, the actual incorporate defense into boxing, like, trying to move away and block punches and use actual footwork or some shit like that, right? So... You know, from there, as you get to a guy like Jen Mace, he was a little bit different. He was, you know, I mean, still incorporated a lot of the mauling and brawling style where you were going to get injured, but he knew what he was doing in the ring, too, in terms of, like, having some scientific skill, which he could exploit over the local, you know, pug who's just going to walk in with his face and try to body slam you. Yeah, and, you know, um, there's there's a pretty direct line, too, from what Jem Mace did, and I'm not saying that he was the person who caused all of it, but he definitely was a massive major influence in Australian boxing and boxing around New Zealand too. Um, because he was, he uh, was friends with and knew a guy named Larry Foley. Larry Foley ran a boxing club in Sydney, Australia. And Larry Foley was instrumental in teaching Peter Jackson and mm -hmm. Bob Fitzsimmons 
and a number of other Australian fighters uh, who went and made their made a bit of a name in the U.S. during around this time, uh, like around this time. And so it, uh, Australian boxing really exploded in large part because of Jim Mace. When didn't correct me if I'm wrong, I might be wrong here. Dai Dowlings, the trainer that kind of mentored Ray Arso when he was young and upcoming. Didn't he have like a, didn't he have a connection to Jen Mace? Or I might be thinking of something. Not else. sure. Might've. Yeah. I mean, they could have been around the same time period and he might've been a lot younger, but I don't know. Um, well, interesting fact way too, um, I'll say is that there was a guy during that time period that I guess was on, was a heavyweight on the come up that a lot of people were excited about. I think he was American. His name was um, Ned O'Baldwin. But he was a giant. He was like a giant of, of the time. And I forgot who they put him in with, but he sparred. He had an exhibition with somebody who was a reputable name, and he beat the shit out of him. And a lot of people were, like, really excited about him because he was a big dude. Like, he for, for that time period, he was huge. And I guess he had some skill to himself, too. And they wanted, they wanted him to fight Mace, but it never came to fruition. And then he ended up getting killed himself in a, uh, by, some, by some dude. Well, now I'm going to have to go look this up a little more. I think his name was Jared Dunn. That was the guy that killed him's name. Hmm. Former liquor something like that. But yeah, Ned O'Baldwin was a dude who was on the scene that I guess they were hoping they were gonna, you know, potentially make a fight with Mace or something like that. And then Man, you you read this in like a 1995 issue of The Ring. I had, yeah, yeah. In, in that pictorial <laughs> in that pictorial history book, bro. No, nah, I'm just kidding. There's a lot of factoids in that. I was really interested in that whole bare knuckle era. It was really cool. So yeah, good name. Yeah, I I still am because I feel like I don't really know that much about it compared to the you know Same. love. Yeah, era, I mean, there's still I mean, like a lot of uh, there's a lot of a mystery lot of involved in different things, and then when you find out, like I've I've heard 15 different fights of being the longest fight in recorded history. You know what I mean? And like there's just different things. Like for the first recorded, uh, the first longest fight I ever heard of was uh, Def Burke fighting Simon Simon Byron for over a hundred rounds and that lasted I don't know how many hours, but hour upon hour before Byron finally fucking died the next day from injuries involved in it. And then like things like that. So it's just it's just a crazy time period. Well and yeah, and how much was unsubstantiated or how much happened but was just never recorded or wasn't recorded. Idle climate over here and throwing down this and all kinds of other stuff and you know, yeah, wild ass dudes who like held gangs down like John Morrissey and other shit, man. What a crazy time. Crazy time indeed. Well, let's see. We probably should start winding it down. There aren't a ton more names, but I mean, like I said earlier too, um, a number of these names, not the guys, not the guys we talked about, but a number of the other names uh, on these kind of, you know, longest career lists were, like I said, it's like they had a career and then didn't fight for 15 years and fought once or something. And it's like, hmm. That doesn't really count the same way. You know what I mean? His fighting consists. But, but there's still like some shout outs you can give. Like Mike Weaver, for instance, had a very long career. Um, another heavyweight. Like heavyweights usually tend to have long careers. Those are the guys that tend to hang on a lot. But a guy like Weaver should be absolutely mentioned. Um, you can mention Harold Johnson because he falls to the category of retiring and then coming back for a few fights in like 1972 or something like that, which is really crazy when you think yeah, about it. It's weird. Yeah. And he ended yeah, up getting. Can you imagine old Harold Johnson running into Bob Foster? Bruh. Oh, no, God, please. Jesus Christ. Bruh. Bruh. Oh, no, no. I don't Get it out of my brain. Don't do it. 
Bob. There's a photo of Harold Johnson being led to his corner after he got stopped by a guy by the name of, I think, Herschel Walker. Wait, not, not her. Excuse me, not Herschel. That's a stupid ass football player. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that fucking brain dead idiot. Um, um, who Herschel something was the first name. It might've been Jones or something like that. The first name was definitely Herschel. And Johnson got stopped in like two or three rounds. And then he just looks really sad being brought back to his corner. He just has this, he looks old because he was old. You know what I mean? He just looked really old and he just had that, like a sad puppy dog looking face on him. And don't, I don't want to think about him. Like a dude like Mike Corey would have carved him up. What do you think? Probably. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Camacho, Camacho senior. Yeah. He was around a long time. Absolutely. You know, uh, Chavez senior for that, for that matter too. Um, Ruben, Ruben Oliveira's really, I mean, he lasted until the early, until like, yeah, he still had a title, he still got a title shot in 1980, and then he retired and came back for a one-off in 88. Yeah, I mean, that's still a pretty, uh, especially given his style and the era he fought through, he fought a long time. And then also, too, um, to go back a little bit, a guy that probably could have talked about more, and I'm sure we'll bring him up on a future episode, really in depth, but like Jack Britton who fought from yeah. the early, early 1900s all, all the way up until the 30s and was only knocked out, what, I think, like, once? So. And how many times did, there were, like, two or three opponents that he fought, like, in double digits and shit? I mean, him and Ted Kidd and Lewis might as well, like, been brothers at that point, the amount of times that they shared the ring together. Joined at the hip. Yeah. yeah. And traded the title back and forth and. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Especially during that era. Jesus Christ, what a difficult time to be alive. Yep. Slapsy Maxie Rosenbloom. Um, you know, Sam Langford that we mentioned. There's so many guys, you know what I mean? And like we're not even mentioning um dudes who just like packed in a ton of tons and tons of fights over their careers, like Verdell Smith or um uh fucking Buck Smith. Or the Strickland brothers. Yeah, I was going to say the Strickland brothers because between them, they have like 500-something fights or something. Johnny Pendleton, like guys like that, those Midwestern dudes who just racked up fight after fight after fight after fight like after just, fight. Yeah, fight, and then the neighboring state wasn't wasn't having communication with the other state, so they could just fight the next day and nobody gives exactly, a Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Going, going Dr. Fight Kevorkian signing this out. note yeah, over yeah. here. Yeah, just do it, yep. And now, honestly, you know, the last two I'll just bring up as we finish up is that you can even mention fucking Ray, Mer- not Ray Mercer, um, Razor Ruddick and um, James Tony, because apparently they're going to fight each other on Trilla. <laughs> so, oh, man, yeah, you know, I, we were talking about this briefly before we started recording. I said, like, however long ago I saw some sort of ad flyer poster or something for that, but there was like zero details. And they were they weren't saying shit. They weren't saying where it exactly it was going to be, what exact date it was going to take place. Just that it was happening. And I was thinking, all right, I hope somebody didn't. You know, I, I hope somebody went through all this trouble for this flyer for nothing. I hope this is not real. Well, it sounds like it's probably real. So eh, you know, international walks, like when um, like when Dredrick Tatum fought. Uh, what was the Secretariat? <laughs> Simpsons reference for the fans out there if they if they watch that show. <laughs> 
goodness gracious, dude. Yeah, I, I don't. I hope nobody gets hurt is all I can say. But they and, and James Tony has been out for a long time, so he doesn't, you know, factor in quite as much for this conversation. But he did fight a long time and he did fight a long time, given how much he loved to spar and how much he dropped off in the last couple of years of his career, dude. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to pick on him, but. Yeah, really I mean, look or a, lot sound that great. Guys, a lot of those guys, like, they had long careers. Like, Ernie Shavers had a long career. Yeah, His career did. started, even, even though, like, he did, he had a long career that started in, what well, was probably, like, the late 60s, very, very early 70s, and lasted all the way into the early 80s at first. Uh, I think he retired initially around, like, 83, 84-ish. And then he made, or might have been even after that, for that matter, and then he made that weird and probable comeback in 1995 along with ron lyle and other heavyweights because foreman was just inspiring everybody at that point there was ron lyle there was ernie shavers there was a former joe journey. bugner joe bugner oh, shit bugner was longer than any of them because i mean and he had and he fought at a higher level than most of them too for whatever reason um there was a journeyman by the name of uh i don't know if you know this name pat levi forte a florida journeyman from the from the 60s Thanks. Kind of familiar, but I'm not going to lie and say well, anything. He fought guys, but he was just, you know, I think he was the first person to take form in the distance, actually. And he tried, he made a comeback. Guy was a bellhop for years in his late 50s, and he tried to make a comeback hoping to fight Foreman. Like they all tried to do some shit, man. It was none of this thing made sense. Like Jerry Corey and with that improbable one. But yeah, Joe Bugner is a good name, too, because Bugner fought as a teenager when, you know, early, early on, I think even like in the late 60s, all the way into the 80s. And, yeah, he had a couple of breaks there. I think his last fight initially was against Ron Lyle or something like that in 78. And then he retired for a bit, came back in the mid-80s, went on a run where he beat guys like Greg Page, of course, and um, and others. I don't, I don't know who else he beat. I know, I know, that, yeah, I know he had some, good, some decent names on his record during that time. But, like, I think he might have, I don't know, uh, James Broad might have been another duty beat, but he beat some good names, right? You know, lost to Marvis Frazier and stuff, and I think then he gets stopped by Frank Bruno, when it, and then he retires a second time. And then he comes back again in the 90s and fighting, you know, exclusively in Australia and shit, fights um, Brian Scott, I think, or one of the, one of the, no, Scott Welch. It's one of those dudes he gets stopped by. But he had a really weird, weird fight with equally washed up Bone Crusher Smith where like Smith threw out his shoulder within a minute of the fight because he's old as shit and Bugner ended up like winning the WBF title or something from it. But yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, that's a, that's a Virgil Hill. That's another one who, you know, fought for a long time, but again, you know, fell off obviously toward the end. Um, but but, I mean, know, he, dude, had that, he had that late career run though, where, um, you know, he did. that's true. He had a couple of like, kind of poppy. Yeah, yeah kind of had a couple of those improbable and, and who was it uh fabrice tioso that he twice like yeah. like and it was like i think i year, was it fabrice tioso like a few years apart or something like that that like oh so he beat tioso in a title defense in like the early 90s before before you know the roy jones and all the other stuff right so he beat tioso i think he beat him by split decision or some shit and then when he fought him for the cruiserweight title right tioso yeah 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 yeah. See, yeah i was gonna say he fought him twice didn't he yeah, yeah. So when he fought him for the Cruiserweight Championship, at this point, you know, Hill had lost to Mikulczewski and he got knocked out by Roy Jones and was looked at him being on the back end. So most people assumed, and I guess, you know, when you think about it, I guess, you know, 
they would rightfully so considering how Hill had looked that they thought it would be easy pickings for him to get some redemption. You know what I mean? And instead Hill came out there and bludgeoned him. First round. They were calling that fool Virgil over the hill. That's kind of (laughs) wrong. It's kind of clever. I ain't kind of fun. But yeah, that was like, you know, he bludgeoned him and knocked him the fuck out in the first round. And, you know, he wasn't going to last as champion. But if anything, that solidified himself being into the Hall of Fame, which he deserved, deserved, you know, got in for. So, yeah, well, he probably should have deserved it anyway, dude. He had the the division that he fought in as a light heavyweight was not a fantastic division. And, 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 you know, the, the defenses that he made against a lot of the fighters that he made, they were not like high quality. But he was a very good fighter and stayed dominant for, you know, the guys that he fought for a long time. But nonetheless, he he should probably be on the list, too. And Bob Foster hated him. (laughs) Because through... I don't don't even understand why he hated him so much. Because it was over two reigns that he, like, made all those amassed, those title defenses. It wasn't just one. But because he broke Foster's record of um, title defenses overall, Foster had a hard-on for him and really hated him. And... Anytime he had a chance to be in front of a camera or especially at the Hall of Fame when he definitely had a chance, you know, when everybody be around him, any chance he got, he'd be bad mouth in Virgil Hill. At one point, he got on stage. I'm, I'm not going by my own experiences. This is reading this in magazines as a kid and other people talking about it who, who witnessed this live. Um, they said at one time at the Hall of Fame, he was supposed to go make a speech. And instead, he got up there and the first thing he did was pick up a, Virgil, uh, a photo of Virgil Hill and rip it in half. <laughs> That's some that's some world class bitterness, dude. For sure. Yeah, and Hill, by all by, I've met Hill before. He is the nicest guy you can meet, like the nicest guy. And I'm sure he had all the respect respect in the world for Bob Foster. Bob Foster was such a bitter dude, though. Yeah, talk about letting some of the things that happened during your career like ruin your life. Good gravy. <laughs> yeah, that's... man. Maybe he would have made more defenses if he didn't keep on trying to move up to heavyweight. He, yeah, I mean, he just he was kind of playing second fiddle to a lot of the guys in the same Olympic class too. You know what I mean? So, yeah. and if he wants to downgrade Hill's competition, look at his some look at his some of his title defenses. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately, some of the light heavyweights that he fought to a couple of those guys were like not good. So oh, horrible, absolutely horrible. But I mean, at least Hill had guys like Leslie Stewart, uh, Bobby Chez, James Kinchin, um. This is, you know, his, first, his early part of his reign was pretty legit, you know. And then finally, when he got out of the comfort of Bismarck, he was the first dude to go over to Germany to fight Mikulczewski. Got to give him credit for that. Roy Jones certainly wasn't trying to do that shit. Hell no, dude. He openly said that he, he for like several years in a row, Roy was like, I'm going to talk to HBO. I'm going to tell him to put the money together to bring Mikulczewski over here because I'm not going over there. And it's like, ugh. Stop, Roy. Like you think they have enough money to offer Mikulczewski for what he gets over there? The dude's treated like a soup. Those those German fighters back in the day, the reason why they never came here is because they didn't have to. People don't understand, dude. Yeah. They don't understand. They don't understand what the Klitschkos were making fighting in Berlin. They don't understand what Mikulczewski, Henry Mask, like all those dude, dudes. Henry Mask, one of the most boring fighters you could possibly imagine. And his fights used to sell out before they mentioned him. They loved him. The fact that Virgil Hill got a decision over Mask in Germany is crazy. Because not only was Mask a boring fighter, he was difficult as fuck to fight. He was that total Eastern European awkward style that kept your arms like They were going nuts for Felix Sturm a couple years ago. Yeah. People don't understand, dude. They don't understand that, like, you know, 
motherfuckers got like 700,000 people watching on ESPN and then sell like 6,000 tickets. And they're like, face of boxing He's the face of boxing. And I'm like, that's what they were selling in five fucking minutes over in Germany in like 1998, dude, get out of here anyway. But yeah, Roy Jones is another one who probably could be mentioned on this list too, even though he's had some big gaps and then he's spent some significant time getting the shit kicked out of him during that career too. But nonetheless, yeah, it is a long career. This was a lot of fun, man. We brought up some good names and hopefully everyone got something out of it. Yeah, dude, you know, we, we try to integrate some, some fun stories and anecdotes in there too, while we're remembering the history, oh, yeah. you know. It's fun stuff. I appreciate it, bro. It's a, we had to close this episode out. We brought up a few names on the first episode, but we had to, had to close it out, man. Appreciate well, it. Definitely. Always. Everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate you. If you did listen in on the podcast again, thanks so much. Go ahead and go subscribe. Leave us a rating on whatever podcast app or however it is you listen to your podcast. We appreciate that. If you watched on YouTube, thank you as well subscribe leave a comment we'll try to say hello back as far as social media goes not saying x i'm not calling it x we're still on twitter my boy eris is on twitter as punch zone eris i'm there as boxing history close that other thing bro i'm not talking to any of you personal level anymore bye <laughs> no not really but also the podcast is also on facebook and instagram so if you want to follow there follow we'll say hello eris we'll talk soon bro have a good one y'all there, buddy.